They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today.
Yo, that beat goes hard. Visuals and beat by Paranoid American, ParanoidAmerican.com. And that he made that when he had hair. So, you know, that was a long time ago. But welcome, my homunculus and femunculus. Homunculi and femunculi. Welcome to the alchemical chamber. We're going to be talking some alchemy today. And I have two very special homunculus with me today. Welcome, returning guest, Professor Longo, and everyone's homie, homie, Romy, homie, Romy. What's up? What's up, bro? You're, you're live, bro. What is happening, sir? Uh, it's tremendous to be here with you today. I'm very excited. Uh, and hello, Mr. Longo. Nice to meet you. Hello. How are you? Professor Longo. This is, this is Lil, Lil Longo, and people are asleep on Lil Longo because this is a man that's probably read like 10,000 books. I mean, I, I don't know how many books this guy is. Look, bro, look at the <laughs> art he has behind him. I mean. Yeah, what you got going on back there, sir? What is that, bro? What is that? The tapestry uh, to my house. Ooh, nice. Yeah. I don't know what, what it is. It's some kind of French like chateau or something. The, uh, you got the house, the, the uh, pond, you got like some kind of crane or something. Very nice. I don't know. Well, we, we love it, yeah. bro. Welcome again. The This is a live. I felt like going live spontaneously just because, right? I think the the air was ripe for this this episode and... Homie, Romy, you want to plug anything? Longo, you want to plug anything before we get started and really jump into this alchemical goodness? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm going to say that having the art, you know, presented, it goes in theme with today's conversation as Rudolph is known as one of the greatest art collectors of the Renaissance. And he was just, you know pronounced in his uh, endeavor for the best uh, esoteric art that he could find. So find that very fitting. Uh, any plugs? Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not feeling very pluggy yet. Let's I, I'm ready to get, I'm ready to get Ooh. juicy. Oh, okay. Okay, baby. All right. Settle down little homunculus. You want to plug anything long ago? I know you, you're, you're a, a very enigmatic man. I know you're very private. I don't know if you want to. The people's watching. yeah, the longos are not big, uh, not big pluggers to be honest. You know, we let our work speak for itself, Oof. and that's about it. Yo, you think this hat's gonna trigger the algorithm? We're live on Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, yeah. and I don't know what else, so we're live on a whole bunch of places. Hopefully, I don't make esoteric or great again. So, <laughs> as you if, if y'all haven't noticed by the title, we're gonna be talking about Rudolph II, the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, this all got started, it sprouted from an episode, a couple episodes that Longo and I had done, and we've been talking, kind of talking, uh, having plans on talking about Rudolph, and here we are, and then another person that I know who's passionate about Rudolph is my boy, Homie Romy, so we all got together, and it all started with this book, which I got at a bookstore that is in South Florida somewhere, right, and I was delightfully informed yep. that it's discontinued so shout out to out peter print, yeah yeah out of print so that, yeah. that would make it mine somewhere but i have one too that would make it more valuable right? nice it was out of yeah dude they're like maybe 40 bucks now like they're a little expensive give it a nice whiff bro 
smells good. All right, so we read this, and I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this book. Shout out to Peter Marshall, and it's The Magic Circle of Rudolph II, Alchemy and Astrology in Renaissance Prague. Now, he does talk about Rudolph, but he focuses on his magical posse because you name it, and any heavy hitter of ever was around this guy. He, what was it? he was attributed to sparking what the scientific revolution because of of the of the court that he had. He had, he had Tycho Brahe. He had John D. Edward Kelly. Copernicus was around at this time. You had Descartes around at this time. You had all the greatest. Giordano Bruno. Bro, Bruno was around. He had just gotten burned before. Yeah, so. Kepler, too. Kepler. All these guys yeah. were around the same time. Now, I'll be 100%. I got kind of sad. And I, and I told Romeo over the phone, I was like, it was, it was a kind of sad story. And my favorite part about it was the the cabinets of curiosities which we'll get into because i have a, bunch, a whole bunch of stuff on that and we're we're going to keep it as structured as possible on this chat uh, homie romy's going to pull up a presentation and we're going to kind of do it chronologically with the the side tangents try to keep it to a minimum but whatever we're going to go hard in the paint we're going to talk all about rudolph a little bit pre-prague Habsburgs, all that good stuff and then we'll get into towards the end of his life but i was a little sad because it's a story that really he wanted, bro. He wanted just he he just wanted to chill, right? With all his stuff, he just wanted to hang out. He just wanted to create the the philosopher's stone, and then you had all this the the politics and everything going on at the time, which he could care less about. And I was kind of sad for Rudolph. Like he he like it resonated with me. And if really, if you think about it, I kind of have a cabinet of curiosities behind me. I have a stone from the. From the Coral Castle back here, I have a globe. I, don't, I know it's going to trigger a whole bunch of people. I got my alien mask. I got my Nick Cage cutout. This is my microcosm. And that's what these guys were all about. That was a phenomenon during this time. But let's get into it. Let's start talking about, I'm going to pull up here, Romy's presentation. What is this, bro? You got dolphins here? <laughs> yeah. And so I'm hoping that, uh, that Longo can chime in too, because I know he's deep in history as well. When we start to talk about um, some of these different characters, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I found this to be kind of funny, and uh, you know, because it's called Rudolf in Prague, right? Yes. So like the era of Prague when he was in reign was called Rudolf in Prague, um, and our buddy Donut over on that channel just did the Illuminati Dolphins video, so I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. Um, so so yeah uh you know the rudolph and and we'll get into more of that later uh but he he was quite literally known as the most esoteric and occult king in history right mm -hmm, like the mm -hmm. mo most kings and 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 queens rulers what have you they have esoteric undertones right they have occulted undertones the vatican has always had under occulted undertones they have the syncretic secrets but it's not on the surface. You have to dig to find these strange symbolisms. But Rudolph was, in fact, open about it. Like mm -hmm. one of the only rulers that you can just be like, he's all about the occult and he's not hiding it. So that's what I was just like, you know, this this guy. But he was also trying to fight, um, fight for what's right. Um, 
but so it's it's a very interesting and deep story i mean inevitably we're going to only scratch the surface today um but yeah so i figured uh it'd be good to kind of like give everybody uh a little chronological order of this so uh as we slide down we got another slide here that says well who the who the who the funk were the Habsburgs okay he was a part of the Habsburgian bloodline and a lot of people are familiar with the Habsburgs um for their quote-unquote deformities their chin Uh, baby that chin yeah the Habsburg jaw right (laughs) so the house of Habsburg or alternatively spelled Habsburg in English and also known as the house of Austria they are still prominent in Austria, um, is one of the most prominent and important dynasties in all of European history. The Habsburgs' monarchical positions include Holy Roman Emperors and the Roman German kings, the rulers of Austria, kings of Bohemia, the kings of Spain, kings of Hungary, king of England, kings of Portugal, grand princes of Transylvania, kings of Galicia and Lodermia, and emperor of Mexico even. Uh, it is said that the uh, where the Habsburg line started was with this man here, uh, known as Guntram the Rich, uh, and and the Guntram the Rich is where he actually got cast out as well. Uh, but he had he had some of his his riches cast out with him. Guntram the Rich, the chronology of the Murray Abbey, the burial place of the Habsburgs, written in the 11th century, states that Gutronomus dives. Guntram the Rich was the ancestor of the House of Habsburg. Many historians believe this indeed makes Guntram the progenitor of the House of Habsburg. However, this account was 200 years after the fact, and much about him and the origins of the Habsburgs is uncertain. But if true, as Guntram was a member of the Echikonider family, it would link the Habsburg lineage to this family. Now, they believed that they were very, very royal and that their blood went all the way back so royal that they couldn't even start to consider sleeping outside the bloodline. No way. If you're a Habsburg, you sleep with a Habsburg. When the Habsburg Rudolf I was elected the Roman German king in 1273, his family was already 300 years old. However, lack of documentary sources and confusion between fact and legend make it very difficult to reconstruct the family tree prior to this day. Genealogy was all part of the parcel of dynastic propaganda in order to demonstrate their legitimacy. Medieval rulers had to display the noblest possible descent. This resulted in all manner of outlandish family trees, and in one case, the Habsburgs went back to the Trojans via a number of Roman families, Julius Caesar and Aeneas, Aeneas, while in another line of descent from the Trojans passed to the Carolingians, the Merovingians, and the Franks. It was even claimed that they were descendants via Osiris and Jupiter, Ham and Noah. Another claim made is that they shared common bloodline with the Babenbergs, which is another huge family. Well, one of the names of Rudolf II's illustrious children, secret, he did have kids, was Julius Caesar. So this kind of tells us that they believe that they were dating back to some of the most Mm -hmm. ancient bloodlines. And this dude was slaying in that alchemical 
P9, if you know what I mean, bro. This dude was just putting it down his whole entire <laughs> life. I mean, right? This dude was a baller, man. And, that, and that's why, like, he was he was going in, and how you said, at a time that that it was very superstitious, a very religious time, and this dude was super open about... So every kingdom had its own ruler, and everyone was was in charge of how they ruled their own kingdom essentially right their own section and when i was reading this and reading through the history i felt like i was reading like a true real life game of thrones that's what it was like and that's why it was so entertaining to me because it was like dang this is how it really was back then these dudes were cutthroat and i mean we're gonna get to it i mean even how he ends and what happens there but continue please okay um just to give even more depth to the Habsburgs and the Babenbergs and where this family comes from and how long they've been in power and that they still have power today, that this bloodline has just been going on for so long. Um, I found some some good text on this. Uh, the first nucleus round, which the present dominions of the House of Austria, this is the origin of the name of Austria, by the way, gradually accumulated was the mark which lay along the south bank of the Danube, east of the river Enns. Founded about AD 800 as a defense for the Frankish kingdom against the Slavs, which always plays a role here, the east versus the west, although its total length from east to west was only about 60 meters. It was associated in the popular mind with a large and almost unbroken tract of land in the east of Europe. This fact, together with the position of the mark, uh, of the mark with regard to Germany in general and to Bavaria in particular accounts for the same name, Oysterreich, i.e. the East Empire or Realm, a word first used in a character in 996, where the phrase in region vulgari nom Asriki occurs. The development of a small mark unto the Austro-Hungarian monarchy was a slow and gradual process, and falls into two main divisions, which almost coincide with the periods during the dynasties of the Babenberg and the Habsburgs which respectively ruled the land. The energies of the house of Babenberg were chiefly spent in enlarging the area and strengthening the position of the mark itself. And when this was done, the house of Habsburg itself set with remarkable perseverance, marvelous success to extend its rule over the neighboring territories. So they had power, uh, and this very prominent ancient land uh, by the Danube River, which has mystical, mystical qualities going back to, you know, uh, the Tuatha de Danan um, and other very mystical uh, bloodlines, um, the hidden underworld, if you will. It seems that they were uh, part of that syncretic takeover that the Romans and the Greeks were very known for. And so... That's that on the Habsburgs, just to give you guys how deep this bloodline goes. And now we're going to look at some pictures of some of these deformed fucks. <laughs> All respect to you. <laughs> and I want to add real quick, bro, and this is this is going to be in my Pythagorean palace presentation. But all these, this family really was because Rudolf, he, as a, as a young boy, lived in the Escorial or El Escorial, which is a hundred percent, bro, a hermetic building. And it's 
100% of Pythagorean, the perfect example of what a Pythagorean palace is. That is one of them. We'll pull up a picture here in a little bit. But yeah, I found that really interesting that he lived in this, you know, Pythagorean palace that supposedly that was built according to these these magical principles and how you're saying that not only are they that's why i believe these i did an episode on ley lines and the parallels how these ancient bloodlines if you will they understand the powers that the earth itself right geomancy has and so they're building their lines their lineages along these lines and along these places around the world and they're tapping into that energy that occulted energy if you will is that a dude on the right <laughs> Uh, I sure hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a Habsburg, so who knows? Yeah. We got a current Habsburg here, right? Everybody knows the very nice, the famous Jay Leno. Yeah. Do you know how many siblings Rudolph had? Didn't he have like sixteen? Fifteen. Yeah. Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. Oh, he was the sixteenth. Hey, yeah, baby. Yeah. Right there. And his bro. parents were, were first cousins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's nuts. That's nuts. So the thing with with that and with that inbreeding is what led to a lot of these crazy accounts of rage, um, turmoil, mm-hmm. depression, deformities, right? Uh, and it, 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 you know, the crazy ruler and that they, it just, it was, it was so like, it's just so ignorant in a lot of ways to like keep it in the bloodline. Yeah, you know, keep it in the family, sure. Uh, you know keep it close with your friends and everything but don't you don't you see how it's it's clearly just fucking with you like i don't know it yeah it's so interesting i would do anything i mean i would hope that dennis is part of this you know you know dennis from it's always sunny here you just got a <laughs> Habsburgian draw i don't know look at this also what's this hey baby fencing <laughs> oh is that what that is really Oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got the sword there, too. Yeah, that's a homunculus, bro. Hold on, hold on. I got, Just... the, I got the button for it, bro. Have you heard my new sounds? Yo, play them. Yo, I'm about to go in, baby. Ready? Certified mother homunculus. Hey. <laughs> homunculus confirmed. Good God. That's a homunculus. Hey, and then the last one. Right homunculus here. confirmed. Eat a bag of dog dicks. Oh, is that Longo? <laughs> Juan spends all his money on these things. No, that's actually AI generated. Shout out to Paranoid American. He is an an AI wizard, so he made those for me. But yeah, I think Paranoid. I think I think our boy Thomas P- PA Paranoid American is a is a robot of sort. I think he's a cyborg dude. He is an so automaton. Good. I I agree one hundred percent. I think we should start a we should start a petition or something to get right to, to reveal that's what dude now it makes sense the fan in the room is charging him as he's going oh. like this ethereal fan yeah. boom right like some dyson sphere type of yeah. thing that's a, ethereally just you know like the little the little fan on the on the hat instead of having that he has it up on his roof dude come <laughs> on bro we know your secrets sparing on american i know you're watching dude you can't so. get nothing over us bud yeah exactly so, what's interesting about the Habsburgs, right is like you have that that classic chin right that long chin but that reminded me of the long skulls of Mm. these ancient mystical beings of the past that are mysterious and um i was like well you know if they're calling themselves you know connected to the lines of osiris and jupiter and things like that then wouldn't they want to almost imitate 
these ancient practices of keeping that mystical bloodline going. Um, and so, you know, you have uh, elongated skulls obviously found in Peru, Peruvian elongated skulls, very, uh, very famous accounts and in, in obviously in Egypt. But one of the more recent mysteries is what they found at the, um, in the underground layers in Malta. And this makes it even a little closer to home, gives it a European home. So I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. Obviously, it's a stretch. Um, but look at this. This is funny. Um, so a little background on elongated skulls, not to get too off topic, but uh, look, it says here, Chongos, the Longos. Ayo. Uh, <laughs> sorry. The skulls were discovered by the respected Peruvian archaeologist Julio Cesar. Okay. During excavations in 1927-1928 on the northern side of Cerro, Colorado, the area of the Paracas uh, Peninsula, uh, they found 429 mummy bundles and they were recovered in two clusters at a site known as Wari Cayen, a large subterranean structure. The mummies were wrapped in cotton cloth, some of which were embroidered with wool to create a elaborate patterns, which are among the best South American textiles ever found. The mummies were then placed in baskets in a sitting position facing north, as will all South American mummies. The preservation is due to the natural desiccation. Almost 400 embroidered cloths were recovered. Uh, so you have Julius Caesar here yet again, keeping it in the bloodline. You know, he's a famous... Peruvian archaeologist. I'm sure that's just a coincidence, Romy. There's nothing right. You, you conspiracy theorists and always trying to connect these dots that aren't there. I said it was a stretch. I just thought it was kind of funny. There's no such okay. thing as a homunculus. Oh, either, look, we so. got Longo out of the room. He's like, I'm out of here. Yeah, we're dealing with we're dealing with stretchy fabrics like this. <laughs> uh, here's a fun word word things, but dragging out the dragon bloodline. Perhaps it's the Habsburgian bloodline, which connects itself to the Golden Rule. Mm. Well, this is very found... slick, dissident esque. What you're doing right now with these? <laughs> <laughs> we found. Uh, we found to keep the esoteric doctrine alive, we need to inbreed so we can imbue the secrets in our genetic memory by using the royal jewels. Um, so something that's really uh, interesting about uh, the Habsburg line and um, anybody that was going to be uh, named emperor. Holy Roman Emperor, this was founded. The Golden Bowl rule, the Golden Bowl, was um, what basically created uh, the separation of church and state. Mm. And so not to be confused with the Golden Calf, but the Golden Bowl or the Chrysobol was a decree issued by the Byzantine emperors and monarchs in Europe during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. A Golden Bowl was a decree issued by the Byzantine emperors. It was later used by monarchs in Europe in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, most notably by the Holy Roman Emperors. For nearly 800 years, they were issued unilaterally without obligations on the part of the other parties. However, this eventually proved disadvantage, uh, disadvantages, disadvantageous uh, as the Byzantines sought to restrain the efforts to, of foreign powers to undermine the empire. The Golden Bowl of Emperor Charles IV, Constitution of the Holy Roman Empire, promulgated uh, in 1356 by the Emperor Charles IV. It was intended to eliminate papal interference in German political affairs and to recognize the importance of the princes, especially the electors of the empire. Which, like I said, is that separation of church and state mm -hmm. because due to that rule saying, no, you, you know, 
we won't have the Pope's interference here. You cannot, you cannot F with us, right? Like we are going to create our rule and do our thing uh, politically. Um, so, you know, you had this thing then created called the Imperial Diet, which started to basically create all these massive laws all throughout um, anywhere that the emperor struck his hand. The, imp- the Imperial Diet was known as the deliberative body of the Holy Roman Empire. It was not a legislative body in the contemporary sense. Its members envisioned it more like a central forum where it was going to be important to negotiate than to decide. Yeah. Okay. Keep telling yourself that. That's where they were making the rules of uh, of how they were going to continue continue forward. Longo, you got anything to add here, bro? Because I know you are a, a Renaissance era connoisseur. Um, no, but he did touch on the Byzantine connection, um, and there's definitely a lot of connections there. Uh, as you know, the Byzantine Empire was kind of like Rudolphian Prague, where it was. Christian to a degree, but also heavily involved in syncretism. So that, like, you know, where they were, they were in, in Constantinople, in like the sweet spot between the Middle East and Asia and Europe. So they had everything coming in. Uh, and same thing in Prague. So you see that there's a lot of connections there mm-hmm. uh, in my mind. And the church was definitely doing uh, fuckery on both ends. Uh, in Constantinople and in Prague, uh, probably a lot of the same, the same things going on. To be honest, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. They know what they were doing. They know what they were doing. But how you're saying, like they they were very free, which that yeah. it, it has a name, and I forget what what they called it in the book. But he was very, I can't even think of the word right now. But anyways, you know, he was very not. I don't want to say liberal, but he was very open to a lot of different religions. And I can't imagine that the church or the Vatican was very happy about what they were doing here because they wanted to, I know they wanted them to stay out of the affairs mm-hmm. of these well, rules. Go ahead. There's also the connection, um, which he was talking about when it, when you're talking about the church and the state um, in the Byzantine Empire, they, they're Greek Orthodox and they had a lot of beef with the Vatican. Uh, in the in the Catholics a lot, you know. I mean, like head to head, um, they did have each other's backs, so to say, um, which is probably more about money in the Crusades. But overall, like they they disagreed on almost everything, um, and you see that in Prague as well, where the Vatican was like, we gotta, we gotta do something here. Like these guys are going wild, you know, like we, we can't have this. I know they claim that Rudolph is possessed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that was hilarious. And, <laughs> and they would say the same thing about the Byzantine emperors, you know, that they're like heathens or mm-hmm. heretics and stuff. They're mm-hmm. doing almost exactly the same sort of Christianity. Can you go so up real quick, Romy? I just want to say, I just want to touch on that real quick. Cause that's a great point. Uh, brother Longo that, you know, like if you find any podcast on Rudolph the second, even like alchemical stuff they're all they're going to do is bash, um, because they, they, they focus a lot on the exoteric types of stories of this, you know, because, you know, we have this 
papal history or what have you like they i mean granted there are the stories okay i heard a story that in the powder room where they were doing a lot of the alchemical practices that he not only starved the alchemists but he then later hung them in cages and then let their bodies decompose uh and uh, on top of the bears that he had underneath uh underneath the garden of the of the <laughs> bro of the powder room which is nuts you listen know? <laughs> yeah. i would okay part <laughs> i wouldn't put it past this guy this guy had lions in his palace and there are records of settlements he had to do with people because they got bit or hurt from these animals okay so would i put it past him that he was doing some some heinous thing like how you're saying bro i mean we we can't put it past them i mean these these are the lizard people that we talk about these are the elites that we talk about Mm -hmm. all the time that we reference i mean he was part of it now he was a little bit more open-minded than the regular lizard person but he nonetheless was a powerful elite uh, of his time so and his um the reason that he was so open-minded and and that's another thing people don't touch on much he was saying in other videos you don't really hear like how did this happen? You know, why is this guy, um, you know, not just a good Catholic, you know, Holy Roman Emperor who's just like holding hands with the Pope? Why is he, you know, locking people in towers and doing alchemy and all this stuff? The reason is because when he was a child, he was sent to be educated in Spain by another Habsburg who's Philip II. He was the king of Spain at the time. And they said, all right. And this Rudolph, is a picture you know, of him, by the way, a very young Rudolph II. Yeah. This is a picture of him. And they said, you know, oh, you know, go to go to Spain, hang out with Uncle Philip, and you know, he'll, he'll show you how to be a good king. Well, a good king at that time, a good Catholic king, was to be an inquisitor. It was the Inquisition. And so a y- young Rudolph is watching his uncle literally have people, you know, torn limb yes. to limb doing these things and so of course one that's going to make him say okay well you know there might be something here like why are they so upset you know why why can't i look into this stuff so of course he's going to want to look into it it was fun to them (laughs) yeah and the second thing is that when he actually becomes emperor you see a a historical amount of religious tolerance they didn't really care in rudolphian prague if you're jewish or muslim or you know if you're into some demonology or whatever it is they're just like you know let's go for it and that's because he didn't want to be like his uncle you know like his family he saw how that ends you know people just getting ruthlessly ruthlessly tortured Mm -hmm. which i guess he did anyway according to the stories but (laughs) well it was only when he wasn't getting the alchemical answers he wanted right like they (laughs) He would he wouldn't do it to the normal people. Apparently, he paid great respects to everybody in Prague. He was great to his people. He wouldn't burn people at the stake, you know. Like they, he had, you know, there were there was justice in the land. If you people were coming to him to in order to try to sell him their art and to try to get on Mm -hmm. his court because he was known as this guy that would give people chances and and he quite literally made artists what they are today. I mean, it was because of their work with with rudolph the second so absolutely and if you want to scroll if down you not, if you did not turn the the lead into gold in 24 <laughs> hours i will hang you above the bears to decompose you fucking wannabe alchemist swine 
Hang you from your sack, bro. Can you imagine that torture, dude? Oof. If you don't get this homunculus made by 12 o'clock today, there will be hell to pay, okay? Little Romy Romy alchemical whatever you are, a little leprechaun. You scroll down real quick to show a young, what was he? Probably, how old was he there? He was a young man, I guess he was. Yeah. Well, look, his his tip got smaller. He's looking fresh, bro. Look at that outfit, though, dude. Look at that. You really grew into the cup. As he's as he's younger, it got it got, and as he gets older, it got smaller. Yo, that's would you rock that though? Would you rock that outfit? Yo, zoom out real quick. Would you rock that's that? That's mad swag. You Yo. know I'd be there. Yo, I would rock. I would rock that, bro. Let me see the shoes. You, you got the what? shoes in there? Uh, no shoes. You got the Jordans in there. All right. All right. You know what I thought was interesting too, because there was a, some pictures up above. Like when I don't know, it's probably not anything to really like dig on too much but when they decide to wear the hat and when they don't decide to wear the hat Mm. so um, what are your thoughts on that i don't really know because i mean hats play a big part in in magical history i mean you know like the crown is obviously you know has all of its um all of its properties has alchemical and energetic properties as well Um, but the phrygian cap um, you know, they said that uh, one of the things that these uh, alchemists would do to reform from uh, being locked in the powder room or, or, or uh, what have you in the lab is that they shaved off their beard because some of the belief was to be a true alchemist, you had to have a full beard. You cannot uh, do proper alchemy without the mystical beard behind on your face. So I, I don't know, like, I, I feel like there is something I've always wanted to dig into. I want to do an episode at some point on the history of spectacles, um, you know, glasses mm-hmm. and the history of hats. Uh, for some reason, it, like in a nerdy way, that sounds really fun and interesting to me. But well, get, get me in there, bro. Uh, I did an episode on the Copio Cipher, which was a secret society of optometrists. They were the with oh. this sleight of hand that was there their code there so yeah i bro the right the all-seeing eye is a big thing so it would make sense that these spectacles were probably how you're saying the any og wizard gandalf or any you know any any stereotypical wizard always has that beard right always has that that long beard and how you're saying maybe it was part of the right they would pluck a hair out and just throw it into the into the brew Mm -hmm. to see if they would get some more gold out of the you know the, the the projection that they were doing or whatever it was yeah dude absolutely i like that mm-hmm. okay yeah exactly and in this one he is wearing his hat he's a lot older in this picture here this is a very famous uh painting of him he's yeah got... that's that's like the og painting that everybody well not and that they, one i think it was the the Arkenbold one right it was the one they didn't hesitate oh the yeah the vertumnus yeah they didn't hesitate to put the bags under his eyes, which I, you know, I always find interesting. Uh, you know, if you want a painting of you, you kind of like be like, you know, clean up my flaws a little bit. But uh, there's something about uh, Longo. What's up with this thing around their neck? Is that part of the Order of the Golden Fleece, or it, it's mm-hmm. it's something? I can't remember. I I, I heard it in a present presentation. And I, I tried to dig into it, but there's just so much stuff I couldn't get into it in time. But what, yeah, what is... I, I don't know that one to be honest. That's a good question. Though. I don't know where that came from. You just wouldn't know it's... style, Romy. I mean, that's a turtleneck, obviously, and I mean it's a fly ass turtleneck. So that's what the dude was just trying to be fly, dude. He got swagger. I mean, bro, 
if you were the most powerful man in the world at the time and you bro mm -hmm. and you could go and call anybody to come yo i want whatever piece i want the holy grail bro find me the holy grail and yep. bring it to me and put it in my cabinet of curiosities right come on i mean this dude was was balling out well, let's yeah, let's get let's get into that very, very soon. I feel like we should definitely start diving into that because he had a he had a fleet of uh, secret agents or knights yes. that he had working for him. Now, remember what we said, right? Uh, we know that uh, there was at one point the Knights Templars may or may not have actually worked for the Pope. And that's who gave them their original power before they broke away. But the Holy Roman Empire didn't work for the Pope. They were not involved in that, known to the Golden Bowl rule. So there was another sect of secret knights and secret agents that were working for Rudolph to go and get him these things that he wished. Um, and we're not talking just paintings. We're talking minerals. We're talking coral. We're talking precious, Bro, precious this guy had items. the guy who invented mineral mineralogy in yes. his court. <laughs> The dude was in his court, like the guy who invented the study of minerals. I mean, and you know about minerals, Longo. I know you you do the crystals and anything. Do you have anything yeah. to add on that? Um. Well, there's a interesting thing uh, intersection between crystals and Prague. So a really powerful crystal, by all accounts, is moldavite. Yes. And moldavite is used in alchemy very frequently it's, it's some believe it could be a philosopher's stone um, some others believe that the emerald tablets were written on moldavite um, because moldavite is extraterrestrial so it is glass mm. from meteors so moldavite and tektite are both meteoric they come in on now we're cooking with gas baby. Um, and if you go to uh, you know like crater sites you can find moldavite and tektite and things like that and prague itself is in the czech basin which is which was formed like the whole geography or topography of prague and the surrounding areas is a big bowl um because a meteor struck there however you know i don't know they say like two billion years or whatever but who who cares? A meteor struck there at some point informed where Prague is. Mm -hmm. So it's actually sitting on top of a, a crater. Um, and in the very sand and soil of Prague, there is there are traces of Moldavite. So there is this like extraterrestrial glass, alchemical crystal in the actual foundation of the, of the city itself. That's all I'd have to say, but it's so really interesting. That is that real quick ahead, because you're touching on something that it's, it's very interesting. It's part of Vincent Bridges research. And remember mm -hmm. the golem of Prague. Well, the reason that they said that they were able to make this because this prima material or materia, I believe it was called was in the soil. So that's why there were all these alchemists flocking to Prague because they're like, yo, it's in the soil, bro. Like it's in here. So Rudolph was it's also yeah. good. It's Moldavite. Yes, 100%. I, I didn't know the name, but yeah. it makes a lot of sense because there's always been this argument of the red powder of projection that Edward Kelly mm -hmm. had. And where did mm -hmm. it come from? Well, 
allegedly it was found through the use of the Voynich manuscript and this mm. magical creature that he summoned using the Voynich manuscript to find this powder, the red powder yeah. projection, which I've always said is some sort of meteorite, some extraterrestrial stone. That's why yeah. they were never able to reproduce the transmutation of lead into gold because they ran out of it and they couldn't. And now the stone at Mecca was supposedly stolen at one point, And when it was returned, it was 60% smaller. So the, the lure goes that they broke it down and they distributed that, that powder, uh, you know, to, right. to their, un, right. The underground, the, the alchemical homies. Cause I would do that too. If I, if I stole something, I'd break it down, give some, you know, ship some to Romy. I'd ship some to Longo and we'd all transmute this gold baby. Cause you know what I'm talking about, but hey. Rudolph was one of the first emperors really to use crystals, right? He was using crystals and he was uh, using them as some, some sort of talismans. He would keep, I forgot which is the one that he would keep close to his heart because he, I, I believe that it gave him, I don't know, his heart better beating. I don't, yeah. I don't know a lot about crystals, but I'm sure you could elaborate long ago, whatever stone is good for your heart. He was into astrology, he was into alchemy, and there was even talks about how he had his chamber was connected to a secret alchemical lab, which he would mm -hmm. sneak to at night in order to try to that change. That is true. He, yeah. So he did have his own personal laboratory for, for alchemy. Absolutely. Yeah, he was he was working firsthand. You know, he wasn't just hiring people. He wanted to get in there. Go ahead, Romy. Yo, the chats are popping off right now, by the way. If we want to pay a little homage to uh you got Mars Pop that commented on the ruffles, said the lace ruffles that wore back then were discovered have been dipped in arsenic and other conductive solutions. Maybe it wasn't just fashion, but an electroconductive purpose. Um, order the golden fleece, right? Um, and then Someone said Moldavite puts off crazy energy and can make you sick. Well, he was always sick. He could never get better, quote unquote. Yes. Um, let's see. The layout of Prague by Crypto Alchemist. The layout of Prague is geometrically aligned to the max. Star Citadel City on ley lines of telluric currents and electro culture attainted yes. uh, architecture. And that's very true. And these next couple slides um, are paying homage to the history of Prague itself and, and mm. how old and ancient Prague is and how many, how long that just modern archaeology says that. Um, so let me read this living. real quick. Let me, cause I, I found it here. Yeah. It goes, Rudolph valued precious stones and crystals for their secret virtues. And he always carried one next to his heart to calm his palpitations and inherited Habsburg weakness. His magical arsenal, which he increasingly drew on when normal methods to influence the course of history failed, included dried roots of mandrake. So they don't say exactly which one it was, but in this book, according to this book, the magic circle of Rudolph II, he did keep precious stones in that, uh, what's the name? I always mess it up, the Krobus Krusiger, is that how you say it, Romy? Correct, correct. The Globus Krusiger, yes. Globus, he had in his in that crown that you pulled up at the beginning, he had diamonds in, in it, mm -hmm. embedded in it, and he... He related to that because, again, this is during the Hermetic is very symbolic, right? They use symbols, they use images. So they were very big on that. And they, the reason for that was because he was, right, the emperor. He was the stone. He was the, right, the one and only. So he had stones that represented that in his crown, essentially. And if you pull that up again, bro, that was pretty baller. The the staff that he had and the Globus Cruciger, right? Did I say yeah, that? It, his his crown jewels or his royal jewels were um 
were were very next level. I'm uh, he wanted to imitate the crown of Charlemagne because they re- thought that they were um, you know family bloodline of Charlemagne, and so the crown of Charlemagne and the crown of Rudolph were almost hand in hand together. Yeah, look at these. Yeah, it's ball. Uh, and it, if anybody has uh, looked at some of my work on uh, what we call uh, antiquated transhumanism, mm-hmm. where I kind of go into all of the crown jewels and the history of them and and their potential conductive properties uh, and how they were using them. This is the Holy Trinity right here. Uh, the, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. These The scepter is a, in, an anagram for the word specter, which is ghost. Um you know, the crown uh, is obviously where the consciousness emits. Uh, and the Globus Crucifer is the mercurial solution. And, you know, uh, it's, I, I mean, these are all, con- these are what we use in our modern technology mm-hmm. to be able to transmit uh, communications across the world uh, is these conductive materials. So to think that, uh, you know, you would have, highly alchemical solutions because these were made by alchemists right they were made by jewelers of back in the day in the royal courts and they were used um for very specific uh uh, properties in my opinion and then you can conduct that with the the ancient architecture of sacred architecture and the throne sitting in the throne the chariot the seat the seat of intuition the seat of power i have something on that as well we can get into it here really quickly but yeah, bro, if you were a bad homunculus, bro, I'd smack the shit out of you with this thing. I'd be like, little, <laughs> little homie Romy is not going to go, pop! Bro, bro, i hit you right in, bro, right in the back of the head, bro. It's like, I'm sorry. And, I'm I'd, sorry. and I'd whip it, too, with, like, my real, like, mm, bro, what's up? Cause, Yo, can I, I want to read a, oh, go ahead, sir, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, well, I wanted to bring up the, well, we'll, we'll leave it towards the end, his chair that was taken. Because that's a talisman on its own, bro. The chair, that the, the throne that he had that was later, right, they sacked the whole thing and install it but go ahead uh well we were talking about the red powder and this book that we all have and we've all read and that's kind of i think where we were all joining was on uh this book by peter marshall um i wanted to read the exact serpt about um one of his favorite alchemists in the circle that uh gave him some some red powder uh michael sendavid uh send Sendivogius. So Sendivogius said that he gained his alchemical knowledge from an alchemist called Alexander Seton of Scottish origin. Seton claims in 1602 to have visited the pilot Jacob Huassen in the Netherlands, whom he had saved the year before off the Scottish coast. In an alchemical experiment, he he showed the seafarer how to transform lead into gold. He then traveled around Europe, visiting Italy, Switzerland, and Germany. In Froberg, he convinced the skeptical Professor Jeinheim of the possibility of manufacturing gold with the help of a magic powder. Several documents claim that he performed the transmutation in Germany, in Cologne. He even used the lapis lazuli as his first substance in the alchemical process. When Christian II, the elector of Saxony, heard of his skill and knowledge, he had him arrested and tortured, but the Scot refused to reveal any of his secrets. Allegedly, Sindivogius helped Seton escape from prison. He survived only another couple years, but it was long enough for him to bequeath some of his magic red powder to his savior. Sindivogius is said to have not only married Satan's widow, but to have borrowed some of his writings in his most celebrated work, The New Chemical Light, published simultaneously in Prague and in Frankfurt. 
In Prague, Sinovogius was reputed to have transmuted gold for Rudolf in his laboratory, suspecting that the red powder might contain the seed of gold. Rudolf had some of it tested and was delighted to find that it contained none. It was indeed a catalyst, but as with all known alchemical experiments which claim to produce gold, the experiment could not be not be exactly repeated as the conditions were so variable. Sinovogius claimed that Satan had not given him the right formula to create more powder before he died. Damn, son. Somebody said... And how do you spell that guy's name? He said Satan? Sendivogius, uh, so S-E-N-D-I-V-O-G-I-O-U-S. It was like Satan, almost like Satan. Is that is that what? Oh, uh, yeah. Shit, I just lost the page. Um, yeah, Satan, uh, S-E-T-O-N. S-E-T-O-N. Alexander Satan. Hmm. Interesting. Just interesting name, yeah. right? That's all I'm saying. But somebody yeah, said, somebody said, no Infinity Gauntlet, and then somebody said, missing the pimp cup. Well. He actually, I have here pulled up from his uncle, he at last managed to acquire because his uncle had passed and he also had a, a cabinet of curiosities, acquired two of his father's treasures, with, which he most coveted. One was the large bowl of precious agate, hopefully I'm saying that right, found in 1204 by the Crusaders during the conquest of Constantinople, which had the name of Christ in the vein of the stone. Rudolf believed that it was none other than the Holy Grail and was convinced that by drinking from it, he would flip, uh, be filled with holiness and good health. This he did in private and found its effects was always positive. And then he also had this, <laughs> this was my favorite one, a six foot long unicorn's horn, probably a <laughs> nor whale horn, which allegedly bestowed special powers on its owners. During his increasing bouts of melancholy, Rudolph would often take both objects and draw a magical circle around him with a special Spanish sword in order to protect himself against the baneful influences of his enemies. So homeboy in private was doing some magical rituals, drinking from the Holy Grail, and he said he felt good. So yeah, the pimp cup was definitely strong with Rudolph II because this dude was doing stuff. <laughs> Longo, you have no anything? Doubt. What did you say? You have anything to add? No, I mean, you guys covered it. You know, it was, uh, he was definitely partaking in the dark arts. You know, he, he, he like we said earlier, he had a laboratory, but firsthand, mm -hmm. this guy, like, he wanted to get in on everything. He had all the money in the world he had all the like you guys touched on nights to go find things yeah you know? i mean he he had it all and he wanted to do it all and you know i don't know how it ended up i wish we had like diaries or something you know or something know. um yeah to hear his firsthand takes on it all you know how, how it went or what he liked what he didn't like you know what mm. worked what didn't work because we have no idea unfortunately and it would be nice to know you know because how well, I guess nowadays you can get a lot of the stuff that he had. So you know, like finding all those stones and stuff, now mm -hmm. you can just go to any store and they have they have lapis lazuli and you know, moldavite and things. But I he, don't know. He was indeed linked with John D and we'll get to that here in a little bit and Edward yeah, Kelly. Yeah. So 
Here's a question for you, Longa. I want to I want to get your opinion on this because he was known for his taste in the arts, right? He was very artsy yeah. and and he had all the greatest painters and alchemists and everybody that you could possibly think of during this time. Would that indicate that he himself was an artist, or do you think that he outsourced this stuff in order to fill that void that he had? Because he couldn't create this art. You know what I'm saying? Because there's always been that debate like, was he himself an artist? Was he a writer? Was he, you know, an alchemist? Because it seems like he really didn't do much of anything except there's stories of him sitting down in front of the painters and kind of micromanaging everybody because they were essentially working for him full time as artists doing whatever it was that he wanted them to paint. Right. Yeah, I think he was pretty decadent. You know, he grew up as an uber wealthy spoiled kid Mm. um, and maintained that throughout his whole life. So I don't think that he was an artist. At least I haven't seen anything pertaining to that, but he was definitely a patron of the arts and a lot of, you know, the Renaissance mindset was that instead of being an artist and doing hard work yourself, you should use your money and sort of make the world a better place through art, you know, or try to find God through art, um, that that sort of thing, or to pay it forward, you know. And that, that's what most of them did. I mean, you could only, they had everything else, you know, he had a palace and everything, so. And, but he was collecting unbelievable works. I mean, stuff that's absolutely priceless now, like Durr engravings, yeah. the German engraver, uh, Raphael, you know, I mean, he didn't have any Michelangelo that I know, but things of that caliber, you know, mm-hmm. Renaissance artists, contemporary artists that are absolutely priceless. He had tons of them, rooms full of these. Um, he and was that obsessed was kind of, with Dürer, yeah. What is that? He he was obsessed with Dürer. Oh yeah, with Dürer, yeah, absolutely. I like I like him too. So I can't blame him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but it, you know, he kind of. His function was not to not to do things himself. It was sort of be, to be a curator, almost like a museum curator. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first of the world, the first in the world, first of its kind. Um, yes. And it sort of helped to spark the Renaissance, really, um, because people could come to one place and get paid pretty well. I mean, he's paying these guys, you know, big money for the most part, and have all of these things from all over the world at their disposable, I'm sorry, at their disposal in one place, uh, which previously could just could not be done. You know, you could have some things, but this guy was like laying it out in front of you. Just like, you know, here's all these stones. Here's all these uh, grimoires. Here's all of the art, you know, figure it, figure it out, you know, kind of thing. And I don't think that had ever been done in history. Not at, at least from what I've read. Um, and that sort of is the spirit of the Renaissance, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is to explore everything, just just go wild on it, you know. We have here, he had Rudolph's passion for collecting was by no means limited to the realm of painting. Throughout his adult life, he collected rare and exotic items, which he appreciated for their aesthetic value as much as their scientific as much as their scientific interests, ranging from precious metals and stones to works of art and instruments of science. He entertained no firm distinction between their artistic and useful aspects. Rudolph appreciated, for instance, the art involved in glyptics, 
the cutting and engraving of gems, but he also employed gems as talismans with astral powers. He was particularly drawn to natural oddities and rarities to those objects which lay on the borderline between the human and the natural world. So again, you could literally go to Prague and and to to let the listeners know, he went from it was where did he move it from? Because I forget it was was it Vienna? Vienna. Right. He moved it from Vienna, Vienna to Prague. So after yeah. he became the Holy Which, Roman. Emperor. By the way, is I mean that kind of gets yeah that gets glossed over, but how big of a deal that is. Mm-hmm. I mean Vienna was it. You know that Vienna is where you have all the stately things, mm-hmm. the architecture, classical music, things like that. I mean Vienna was, and he just ups and moves. You know, and this guy became. Mm-hmm emperor at 24 years old and was it the title also I mean, like made up kind of sort of did i read that correctly where they gave him this title but it wasn't like an official title at the time did i read into that correctly when he was a kid yeah when when they... no his father his father maximilian was after he died he was the oldest of the uh the the male children so mm-hmm. he was given the proper rights okay i'm, I'm thinking um, he was then yeah but he loved Prague. He went to Prague when he was younger and, you know, like Longo brought up earlier, you know, he he despised the uh, the way that the church was moving towards just massively killing anybody who stood in their way um, and most likely had some, uh, you know, occulted uncle or, or somebody that he valued and cherished uh, that was able to give him some sort of like insider alchemical knowledge that really got him seeking in these arts i i mean i can't i couldn't find anything but you know there's always an inspirational uh family member or or somebody that um that kind of like was was his role model but but prague was very much so in his plans like i think he had always wanted to move to prague and so when he did that it was a was a huge deal and um but what happened was i mean Oh, I don't know if we should get into this part until till later, um, you know, because the part of the the ending of his life. Was no, go ahead, go ahead, and, and continue the 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 slide show here, and then we'll we'll get okay. into the end of his life. Okay, Rod, 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 Roger, Roger. Um, okay, so some prehistory on Prague. The land where Prague came to be built has been settled since the Paleolithic age, several thousand years ago. Trade routes connecting southern and northern Europe pass through this area, the following course of the river. Following the course of the river. From around 500 BC, the Celtic tribe known as the Boi were the first inhabitants of this region known by name. The Boi gave their name to the region of Bohemia and near the river Vitava. The Germanic tribe, the Marcoromani, migrated to Bohemia with its king, Marobodus, in the year nine meanwhile some of the celts migrated southward while the remainder assimilated toward the macaromini uh in 568 most of the macaromini migrated southward with the lombards another germanic tribe uh which is like a huge name in in the states and like most cities have a lombard street which is interesting uh the rest of the macaromani assimilated uh with the invading west slavs the migrations of the nations uh, according to legend, Princess Labruse, the sovereign of the Czech tribe, married a humbled plowman by the name of Prim- Primsil uh, and founded the dynasty carrying the same name. The legendary princess saw many prophecies 
from her castle, Libdusin, which was located in central Bohemia. Archaeological finds dating back to the 8th century support the theory of this castle's location. In one prophecy, it is told that she foresaw the glory of Prague. And one day she had a vision, I see a vast city whose glory will touch the stars. I see a place in the middle of a forest where a steep cliff rises above the Vitava River. There is a man who is chiseling the threshold for the house. A castle named Prague will be built there. Just as the princess and duke stoop in front of the threshold, they will blow to the castle and the city around it. It will be honored and favored with great repute, and praise will be bestowed upon it in the entire world. They will bow to the castle so and the city around it. He said blow, or not. I mean, I'm sure they're blowing stuff too, but you know what I mean? Yo, so that that story that you just read, I remember Vincent Bridges talking about how there that about this story, and I was never able to find it. Right? I was never able to to locate it. And now you it, it needs citations, obviously, but right from We Keep Idea, shout out to Slick Dissident in the chat. But yeah, that that story of how it was made for this king's daughter or something or other where and it had some sort i also heard it was put that there was a, a natural magical circle and i think that's what you're getting at there the archaeologists in prague uncover ancient seven thousand year old neolithic structure so is that what they found that they find like some sort of circle look at it boom i can't see oh. it oh wow whoa okay that's wild so think wow. think about that just think about this story for a second how how actually beautifully prominent that is to uh, the relevance of, of everything that we're talking about. So talking about Moldavite, talking about spiritual qualities, talking about ley lines, talking about geomagnetics, talking about crystals and mineral uh, structures. She said a city that will touch the stars. Oof. It did. It had the most prominent yes. astronomers and astrologers in history that landed there, that built observatories there. Mm-hmm. She quite literally might have been channeling some sort of timeline thing. And maybe that's what a lot of this occultic esoteric uh, knowledge is, is being able to tap into the earth and energies to be able to see the past, the present and the future. Um, and, you know, the syncretic overlords are, are kind of just wiping that away, putting their homes on top of that so that they can control the present, the future and, and so on and so forth. Amen. I mean, obviously yeah. it's a stretch, but, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I go with it. And and that's why I was so excited about this episode. I called you and I was like, yo, let's go to Prague, bro. What's that? <laughs> we're even lo- we were even looking up like how much the, the, the tickets cost to go to Prague. And you, and I was like, yo, I, I can't go for like two weeks though. And you're like, come on, you can at least go for 10 days. I'm like, yo, let's go to, they have an alchemist alley. So it's a, like, it was a place where these alchemists were just hanging out, bro. And they should let's, golden lane. Let's go to called. let's go to Prague. Yeah. Let's, let's go. go, bro. Let's go, dude. It's magical. Uh, Franz Kafka lived uh, on Golden Lane, which is where all the alchemists live. Like Oof. people can still live in those houses, at least back in his day. And Kafka lived there, which is pretty interesting. You know? Whoa! And someone in the chat mentioned uh, Franz Bardon, and he is Czech. I, I think they were asking. I don't Ooh. know if they're. Franz Bardone, he's like a magician, hermeticist. He wrote some really, really good books. They're expensive, collectible books. Well, you would know about that, right? You have you, you do rare books. I didn't see that that yeah. that comment. Yeah, we have a whole bunch of people in the chat. Shout out to everybody in the chat. 
out of our hundred people in the chat. So if everybody in the chat just donated a quick thirty three dollars, thirty three dollars, we could be going to Prague right quick. You could fund a little homunculus's trip to Prague, and we, yes. re- bro, we'd be in the underground caves, right in this lab, recording a podcast right now. What's that? Right, to tr- trying to transmute the lead into gold. I mean, it would it would be such a great time. But yeah, dude, for real, I want to take a trip. One of these days to somewhere magical, and I think Prague would be the the place, bro. But absolutely, I agree with you 100%. I think, that the, I think that's something that's overlooked. And I remember when you and I first got together and started doing research, you were real big on architecture, and I was just like into the occult. And then when my research crossed streams with your research, when it finally got into the talismanic, amulet, et cetera, et cetera, realm of things where you're like, yo you can charge an entire building and use it as a talisman. Well, extrapolate that even bigger. You can use an entire city as a talisman, right? The, the, the magic, the implications, and it makes you think of why all the, all this, the, the, the biggest cities are always in a line, right? Where all these, you know, Washington DC isn't there just because no, 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 no. The people who built these cities and the right they, that they go back hundreds of years, they know this. They know they can tap into the earth itself and use it for their magical abilities of whatever nature that they want. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're absolutely right about that. And the fact that they found this, what is it, a circle? Or did they have an actual structure there, bro? Do you have any more information on that? No, it, it had been flattened. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it, it clearly suffered some sort of like, uh, deluge or of sorts you know i mean it the they got the remnants of it the the basic the base shape um but it's still being dug i mean you know how archaeology works it's like you're lucky that we even got that right they're, they're lucky that we were even <laughs> able to see the very basic structure that that was yeah um, but real quick to touch on that you know thinking about these these different powers that be and and their different goals and things and and how unique rudolph was with his purpose and and what he was trying to do with his goals you know uh or shout out to the old the classic the og tracy twyman and her um putting together the brilliant books um explaining how money is an alchemical process it's a philosopher's stone mm-hmm. of creating nothing uh you know gold out of nothing essentially taking the dollar of back in the day to a dollar that we have now mm-hmm. uh, and quite literally creating this gold coin there he was not about that he didn't care about money he didn't actually care about creating gold i don't believe so um because gold is uh the philosopher's gold is different than tangible physical gold they said that he had seven million coins golden coins unused in a chamber that they found just chilling that he had not even not even touched he did not care about money he cared about something a lot deeper because a lot more of these hermetic mysteries these ancient mysteries and i i would i wouldn't be surprised if he in fact knew about this ancient civilization that was there um and this and they were full he maybe even heard about this old story prophecy that he needed to fulfill the legacy of prague to uh enact the actual purpose of the ancient civilizations um that there's always been a constant battle potentially you know i i don't know but it's he was (laughs) very much so trying to do some shit and i am i am fucking pissed i am pissed 
anyways, uh, I like downgraded on my, my speech there, but you know, <laughs> here we are. Yeah, no, absolutely. Shout out to Colt the Slux there. Everybody go follow his channel. He does some great stuff. We have an episode coming out soon. I definitely think, like you're saying, I definitely think he was aware of prehistory and the history of Prague. It was no accident. Uh, I mean, this guy had all the power and money in the world. Mm-hmm. He chose Prague. And we touched on it earlier that it's literally in the soil. There's Moldavite in the soil. It, it, it's constructed on a crater site, you know. Which would make sense. Objects are stuck there, you know. Which would make sense on what either you or Romy was talking about. How he would he went to with what was it Philip, his uncle, Philip. Yeah. And yes. maybe they revealed to him some alchemical secrets, perhaps, or I don't know something even more supernatural. Maybe he was visited by right the Paracelsian Elias Artista, right the immortal alchemist. Maybe who knows? Because this dude yeah. and we can get into speculations after the fact, but I mean. When you have everything that you could possibly want, what, right, whatever, what you would want, and this is me speaking, this is my opinion. If I have everything that's material in this material realm, materiality itself, whatever the money, he had women, he had a collection of dwarfs because he thought that they were magical. He had lions and tigers roaming around his his palace because that's baller, bro. It's like some Mike Tyson stuff right there. Like you just have a, a lion and a tiger just roaming around. It's like, oh, you bit your leg off? Here's a thousand gold coins. Get out of here, right? You would want the next thing. And I think that's why he was involved in all this metaphysical stuff. He would want immortality. Well, what does the Philosopher's Stone give you? Immortality. Not only does it give you endless riches because you can turn everything from lead to gold, right? You turn everything to gold, but you could also transcend this dimension quite literally. So the fact that he was drawing magical circles with his little unicorn horn and drinking from the Holy Grail and doing all this stuff in secret. I mean, dude, I mean, he wanted that next level, right? The the next, he wanted to transcend this dimension and, and live forever, probably. Oh, absolutely. No doubt. Rudolf Steiner, another Rudolf. Yep. Uh, Rudolf Steiner says the Philosopher's Oof. Stone is, is carbon. Is carbon? Yeah. Um, and he thinks that basically that you can become a breatharian where all you do is breathe in uh, oxygen and you keep the carbon inside of you. So when you breathe out, it's like some kind of pure air if you get to these purified states. Interesting. Um, and you, it crystallizes inside of you, basically, like like a diamond or something. That That's like is, Wim Hof type of stuff, where they do the breathing yeah. exercises. Yeah, it would make sense. Well, and then if you look at the ancient Eastern mysticism of, of yoga and these uh, these practices of really diving in. It, it's it's breath practices. I 100% love that. Um, Rudolf Steiner, shout out. Uh, no, you know, maybe potentially slightly racist. Still great. Um, (laughs) great work. I I have a slide later and we'll get into that, but it really touches on what you just said. Um, that if the carbon is the philosopher's stone, then the elixir of life is, is oxygen. Mm -hmm. Um, and when they were able to extract oxygen, uh, and one of the, one of the, uh, the famous people of the court created the very first submarine, which we'll get into later. I don't want to ruin that slide. Oh, I just want to say about that. Yeah. I just want to say this one weave real quick. Okay. Do it, baby. So you have this, you have this line of Ferdinand's, you have this line of Rudolph's, you have this line of Maximilian's, right? 
and mm-hmm. it's all Habsburgian blood. It's all Braburian blood. It's all royal blood. Okay. It led all the way up onto, let's talk about World War I. So the next in succession. So we're, I, I had all this stuff. Like, I'm not going to read all this shit. I've been reading so much, but like, I'm just, we're going to jump like, there's been Rudolphs, there's been Ferdinands, there's been Fredericks, there's been all these these people that are harnessing the archetype of their family name, right? Let's jump into the 20th century when this bloodline actually finally started to seize on itself. And I found this to be really interesting because it, it, it seems to be an ongoing battle of something that has almost been procured for almost thousands of years. So in the 20th century, in the next succession of the Austro-Hungarian throne was Francis Ferdinand, D.S.D., after the crown, the Prince Rudolph, the son of Emperor Francis Joseph I, had committed suicide, and after the emperor's brother, Ferdinand's father, had died. Ferdinand, related uh, to Jagiellon Luxembourg, uh, was married to Sophie von Chotik from a Czech aristocratic family. Uh, aristocratic family. They lived in Bohemia in the Konopiste Castle, not far from Prague. He was in favor of a triple monarchy, expanding an Austro-Hungarian dualism in the Austro-Hungarian-Czech triple monarchy. On June 28, 1914, he and his wife were assassinated. The assassination led to World War One. World War One ended with the defeat of the Austro- Austro-Hungarian Empire with the help of this guy, Tomas Masaryk, uh, who was going around the world to try to find sol- political support. Uh, I find that really interesting that you have this ongoing theme of esotericism and occult and this deeper knowledge uh, connected to the Rudolph and the Ferdinand, the Habsburgian bloodline, mm. and then that final capstone being pushed off and the assassination of them leading to the World War One, And then we know that World War Two was a very occult war as well. And so it's just... And then we find ourselves in now. Now we find ourselves up to modernity. We jumped from the the Renaissance period where you're having all of this massive influx of science and and alchemy and uh, you know the the royal bloodlines feuding with each other. Like Juan said earlier, this this live action Game of Thrones actually 100%. happening. Mm-hmm. And then you have the consolidation of power to the reality that we exist in now. Ended with that. Like that was always trying to be decapitated and i haven't really put together a full weave on that but i just what do you guys think about that i find that really fascinating real quick bro the votes are in i went ahead and i asked my side if homie romy is a homunculus we had 20 votes 90 percent yes that you are a homunculus so shout out to the chat i'm sorry bro Who, who, uh, who is his homunculus master is the real question Oh, who created me? Who's my pop pop? <laughs> I don't know, bro. Maybe. What is my goal? <laughs> <laughs> to spread the truth? I don't know, bro. Yeah. <laughs> well, hell yeah. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, appreciate your... Um, appreciate your... So, your fucking votes, you fucks. I love real, you all. Thank real you. quick, bro. Hold on. This is my favorite one here. Uh, homie Kulis. <laughs> What you're getting at, because you're making me think, right? The Thirty Years' War happened after Rudolph 
right after his spoiler oh, alert, yes. his, his brother strips him of all his titles and everything and he dies alone and powerless except with, the, with an empty title but this 30 years war how you're saying was kind of sort of occultic in nature and then you have world war one and then world war two well i i say world war two was more occult in nature than anything else right because we have the n-word the, the not that n-word but the n-a-z-i's i'm not going to say it for the algorithm but those n-words they're they're trying to they say that they had this technology and that they were trying to right they had extraterrestrial technology or they had secret societies or maybe they had some alchemical technology that they, they, they took Prague too and they, they took, took Prague. so maybe perhaps they knew the mm-hmm. significance of this area and they needed to hold it for whatever reason i mean but but what's what what i really love about this is that you see the sort of mirroring right history doesn't repeat but it often rhymes and i mm-hmm. think that these elites know that i think that's what what this is all about about not only mirroring history like these significant events that happen for example i think this is why the right that we all get around about the homunculus being like this i always talk about it but I think that the homunculus is important because if you're able to put in that in that talisman, the spirit of this ancient deity and sacrifice it and replay a an event in, in, in history, right? Like you, you have all these stories of two brothers fighting with one another. Well, what if you can do that today? What sort of powers would that bring you today, right? Unless it's symbolic and alchemical, et cetera, et cetera. But the point that you're able to reenact these plays and these stories that some scriptures are based off of, right? Like, I mean, you have Cain and Abel, right? You have a whole religion that, that really talks about that story. And I think that replaying these things over and over again in history, because you have Rudolph, right? The brother against his other brother, right? One betrays the other. So you have this opposing party. Again, that's just, this is just me thinking outside the box, but I think you're right, Romy. That's what I'm thinking about right now about the, the repeating of history through how you're saying like this, this weird alchemical connection that's kind of sort of there, but not really, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's, well, it's, it's uh, 30 years war, 19 or 1618, right? Uh, World war one was 1914, but we had the Spanish flu in 1918. So you have 300 years gap in that. And then we had what in 2018, 2019 of the starting of our, our, virus or whatever here and then the hundred years war um which is you know it slowly was a gradual thing but that was also 200 years before the 30 years war and it's just like it's almost on a rhythm of like these patterns and these guys wrote this great book called the fourth turning neil howe uh and his and his co-author wrote this great book where they kind of broke history down into these segments and and saw how these uh cyclical uh patterns were just i don't know if they were like archetypally fed through just i i don't know i don't know it's so deep that's not what this conversation is about because we should dive into that a, a lot deeper um because I'm so caffeinated, I'll just start spitting shit and everybody's going to think I'm just an idiot. So I don't really <laughs> want to go too much on that. But uh, please, I didn't mean to cut you off, Sir Longo. Please continue. I don't remember what I was saying. It's all Damn good. it. I'm sorry. I'm such a dick. Okay. But the 30 Years War was actually a result of um, 
Rudolph being too religiously tolerant. He had too yes. much tolerance. Yeah. You know, when you let people be that free religiously out in the open, they mm. start butting heads really quick. Mm. You know, they don't keep it at home. They're not like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll be a Protestant at home. And, you know, when I'm in public, I won't talk about it. Now, all of a sudden, they're like, no, we're building a church next to your church. You know, like Rudolph said it was fine, you know, like that kind of thing. And then they're just going at it, you know. Mm. And so it actually ended up rising uh, or raising religious tensions. You, you, because of his sort of lax attitude towards religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It does make sense. And that's, <laughs> so that's why they say, even though the 30 years war happened, you know, six years after his death or, you know, it was still technically his fault because wars yeah. just don't happen overnight. You know, they do take a few years to truly kind of like yeah. go on, but look at where we're at in society when, you know, just talking at the point that you just brought up, like we have, churches next to churches you know everybody's out here speaking their freedom um and i think that that's almost set up to fail on its own um as this system is a very inevitably set up to fucking fail right um stealing our illusion what what have you uh and i gosh you know let i, I just want to stick to the mystical stuff because let's go let's go all right, let's look at let's look at his collection. We haven't even talked about his coots and camer. Uh, I just butchered that word. Coots and camer, but it's all right. But I, let me touch on this real quick because, and let me let me pull up the chair because I, I I thought it was beautiful. But the the idea that during this time there was this phenomenon of having your little own microcosm to the right to the macro, your reflection of your hobbies, and how we talked about there was. A, he had, he had, there, there was ones with dried up chameleons and there was even some collections that, right, the Cabinets of Curiosities. Well, we had, we just had that show on Netflix with Del Toro, Cabinet of Curiosities. Well, that comes from this era, from the what? 16th century and, and, and really on, right. where people were storing these crazy collections. Even the regular person had their own collection. Now, Zoom out, and a guy like Rudolph had an entire palace full of things where he would go in there, and not only did it serve as some microcosm to his macro, but it also served as a museum, right? It was sectioned off, and these certain sections were for certain things. So you had this entire collection of not only magical things, but also it, it, it talked about history, and it talked about there was some collections with, with even human bones and human body parts that I read, right? They would go and they're like, hey, this person died of whatever. It's like, well, let me get his finger bone right there. And then they would just take the finger bone and they took it as a souvenir for wherever they were at, wherever they were traveling. But Rudolph, again, would tell his people to acquire things for him. Like, hey, go and find XYZ for me and bring it here. And so Rudolph II's Kunstkammer was one of the most diverse of its times and it was obviously plundered after the fact. Let me pull up here the, I have the, his chair, which was also stolen, but I, I found it really, really crazy looking. Yeah, they were starting to ransack Prague yeah. uh, during the war. And they, like, thankfully, <laughs> some like-minded some like -minded people got, got a lot of those beautiful things from Prague and, and put them into museums and things. Yeah. And, like the Voynich manuscript. Yeah. The yeah, Giga, exactly. what was it? The Giga uh, um, Codex or something like that? The Codex Giga or something? What was the name of it? Oh, Codex right. Giga, yeah, yeah. 
Rudolph gave um, gave the Voynich manuscript as a gift to I think it was a doctor or pharmacist in his court. It was some sort of doctor, um, you know, like an herbalist or something, and they cured him of what was considered a grave illness, like he was going to die. And this guy brought him back, um, like from pretty bad. I don't. It, they didn't specify what it was. Um, and he gave it to this dude. And from there, it went to that guy, another lawyer that was in his court. I think that the doctor died and gave it to this guy who was a lawyer. That huh. guy gave it to some other dude, gave it to some other guy, and it ends up in Italy um, in a library, like a sort of, I don't know if it's a university library, something along those lines. And then it ends up in the hands of um, the Jesuit order. Are you talking uh, about the Voynich or the Codex Giga? Yeah, the Voynich, yeah. Oh. Oh. And so it ends up in the Vatican. Um, and this is where it gets weird because it ends up from the Vatican. It, it disappears for like, I don't know, 150 years, something like that. It's just sitting there. And uh, it ends up in the hands of Voynich, the guy you know, where it gets his name from. It's his last name in the 1800s. He's a bookseller. He's, he's an antiquarian bookstore owner, Oof. rare book dealer. Um, and somehow he was like getting books at auction from the Vatican, like these rare things. Um, and, and he bought the Voynich manuscript. And from there we have like the direct lineage. It's like his children and stuff. I think it's, great grandson gave it to Yale or one of the universities and so yeah, but it's crazy I mean he was given gifts out like that like oh thank you for curing me here's the Voynich manuscript you know <laughs> well if you can read it I don't know. it's that sounds crazy to us today right because we know of its significance after the fact right hindsight's 2020 but do you think he really understood like what he had and in, in probably not right I mean if he was just giving it away it's like yeah oh, Romy go ahead and take that <laughs> The Holy Grail, dude, just uh, just taking yeah. up space. What's collecting dust? Go ahead and take it. I only use it at night when I'm trying to cure myself of you know my schizophrenic depressions and, <laughs> and my, my manic episodes. But I, I love the way that he puts it here. So Rudolph also went out of his way to acquire mechanical objects with hidden properties. One of his most precious possessions, is one of my favorites, was a bell decorated with magic symbols, which he reportedly used to call up the spirits of the dead. Rudolph mm -hmm. was not only dazzled by bright and uncommon objects, but more extravagant the claims made for them, the more he held them dear. So again, people were just probably trying to sell him like whatever, like, yo, this is, this is a homunculus. Here, take this. He preferred to spend his time in the company of his artists and artisans rather than the ministers, ambassadors, and courtiers. As his desire for seclusion increased, the latest wonders of his Kunstkammer studios, workshops, and laboratories eventually became more important than the affairs of state. Although little more than an amateur, he loved to try his hand at watchmaking and inlaying as well as at painting and drawing. So that answers our question there. At least he tried. Was he good? We don't know, but he at least tried. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Watchmaking and all that stuff and alchemy. And he goes on here, uh, the Kunstkammer certainly offered Rudolf a tranquil place to observe the works of nature and art as his hopes of universal peace for the Christendom collapse. But it was much more than a simply solitary retreat from the world. As a repository of gifts, it played a role in his political activities. Giving gifts was a central part of diplomacy at the time. It also served as an emblem of his vision of the world and of himself as the earthly equivalent of Jupiter and the reincarnation of Augustus responsible for their care. So then here, let's see here. He There was one part I wanted to read. Where is it? Anyways, yeah, his scammer, which was his his freaking his collection of things that it served as his place where he could go and just kind of chill out. Right. And well, and there are also magical amulets and talismans things there where he could, you know, do his bidding with you. will. if anybody's had, um, I mean, I would hope that anybody listening has a, some sort of altar in their home. You know, your home is your coot scammer. It is your cur- uh, cabinet of curiosities and you should fill it with fun things. I mean, you know, skulls and bones and rocks and stuff like, and, and if you do that, and if you have, uh, if you have this altar, what have you, and if you sit in front of it, it can be a very high, heightened spiritual experience for you. And, and um, I really um, suggest people go and, and sit with their breath uh, in front of these things that you find special and, and, and see what happens for you. See what type of like downloads you can get. Um, it's a very wonderful and beautiful thing to mm-hmm. take prized possessions and let them encompass you uh, during your meditations. Mm-hmm. And I have here when what fired Rudolph's mania for collecting in the first place, it provided an escape from the life of the court. He found his real solace, not in the arms of his mistress, Ka- Katrina or the other imperial women, but in the heavy silence of his Kunstkammer, where the Ars magic of his collection occasionally worked its effects. He went to it like an opium addict to his pipe in order to escape the entanglements <laughs> of this world and to imagine a more beautiful and harmonious realm where he really was Augustus and Macanius. Macanus rolled into one. Secondly, there can be no doubt that Rudolph suffered from an acute sense of possessiveness. Arch and uh, Archduke Duchess Maria. Uh, I'm not going to read that. But then here he goes. While this may have been part of his unconscious mo- motivation, his collecting obsession was both intellectual and sensuous. His passion for art was intimately connected with the pose- for his passion for science. He wanted to penetrate beyond appearances and attain a vision of the ultimate nature of the universe. Hence his interest in the arcane sciences of alchemy and astrology, the occult, magic, and other speculative arts. He wished nothing less than to solve the riddle of existence, to foretell the future, and to find the key of immortality. Rudolf's Kunstkammer was not, therefore, just a random collection of curious items, nor was it merely for his private contemplation. It provided him and his court with a magic theater of the world, a distorting mirror of the universe. It was also more than one man's folly for it offered a special source of learning for his growing band of seekers after truth by gathering together all aspects of available knowledge arranged systematically according to their artistic, scientific, technical, and natural character. So, bro, this was like, even the homies could get it. Even the homies could come around and be like, yo, let's go and stare at your holy grail or the spirit destiny or whatever it was that you have in that room. Like, let's all go and learn. 
about whatever you have. Right? Again, it was mm-hmm. the fir- one of the first encyclopedias. I mean, uh, museums. That was like an encyclopedia, right? Everything was broken down and cataloged. Now, this we bring up the topic of Elias Ashmole, right? The the Ashmolean Museum, and, and it it I gave you that book. Oh, you did, right? I have it back there, actually. Yeah. yeah. So he was one of the first people to, to establish, right, um, uh, the first museum, essentially. Let me pull it up here. But he was kind of like a scumbag. He, yeah. his first, <laughs> so the Asmolean Museum, which coincidentally he's linked, he's linked to, right, Bacon, John D, and all the greatest, right, magic. Bacon? Oh, the the Francis Bacon. I mean, I think it was that Bacon, right? Baconian? He was real big on Baconian stuff. Let's see here. Anyways, he was linked to John D. And the Ashmolean Museum, the first, England's is Britain's first public museum. But the way he got that was through tricking this other guy into signing over. He's like, hey, let me catalog all your stuff, which was... The dude's name was John Tradeskent the Out the Elder, and he had at the time he had one of the greatest collections. Again, these people were collecting the all these all these things. It included antique coins, books, engravings, geological specimen specimens, zoological specimens, and <laughs> one of which was the stuffed body of the last dodo ever seen in Europe. So the dodo bird was seen as since it was a flightless bird it was seen like yo i want one of those because it's a flightless bird like it's like a like a paradox of some sort but this guy elias ashmole he's like yo let me let me catalog everything for you and we're gonna promote it whatever and then you know it'll be it'll all be yours but at the end of the day he like hijacked the dude's collection and stole it and then took over all his stuff and then he opens up a museum i was like what in the world, bro? The Ashmolean Museum of Art and Archaeology. So its first building was erected in 1678 and 1683 to house the cabinet of curiosities that Elias Ashmole gave to the University of Oxford in 1677. Yikes. So Yikes. Yeah, bro, this dude stole that collection from that guy, bro. He straight up stole it. Wild to me. I mean, that's... That's what's just been happening, man. We just keep stealing things and putting names on it, claiming, you know, <laughs> claiming it's like it's mine. Possession is not intentional for law. So it's mine. Put my name on it now. Hurry. Please write it down that it's mine. Like the classic John D. Scrymere that was stolen famously from, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Pyramid of Mexico, uh, one of the Pyramid of the Sun. There's like an obsidian because obsidian is like a sacred stone to the ancient Aztecs. And, you know, who gets credited for that? Not not the South American culture. Right. But but none other than John D gets credited for having this mirror and invoking the Enochian uh, archetypes. It's like, oh, OK, great. Not the actual people who created the mirror itself and it, its homeland, where it came from and where the obsidian was most likely harvested. Um, you know, that's, that's my biggest beef with Western esotericism and Western occultist is that it's a lot of times something that's been stolen or hijacked from something else, like most likely Eastern mysticism, you know, and it's just like, 
you know, it's great yeah. to talk about. I love it. But also at the same time, like, let's try to also try to give homage to the roots as we're talking about these white fucks. Yeah. Yo, there's a lot that's wild. I mean, even in contemporary stuff, uh, if you go read, and I'm a big fan, but if you read Aleister Crowley, um, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just have to go in there knowing like half of it is stolen like, straight <laughs> up. He just puts it. Yeah, I mean, you read like uh, his sections on yoga, and they're just like Raja Yoga by Swami Vivekananda, almost word for word. If you read that book, it's the same exact instructions, the same stuff. Um, and you could go on and on and on. There's so much that he took, um, which you know, I mean, there's some service in that. You know, they're bringing it to a new audience and whatever, but they definitely don't give credit where credits do. Dude, yeah, never. Uh, Juan, what were you showing there? Was that the throne? Yeah, that was the throne of the chair from the Kunstkammer of Emperor Rudolf II. And, and you saw that. Let me pull it up again. The detail that is in this chair, bro. I mean, look at that. Look how crazy this chair is. I, I believe this was a gift. I don't have the actual breakdown of the chair itself. But we have here the... Check that out, dude. How crazy that chair is. Damn. <laughs> Wow. Is it wood? Is it bronze? So I have the whole thing here. I didn't actually read it. They don't make them like they used to. They don't make them how no. they used to. Yeah, but again, it was it was stolen. It was stolen. So on the treasure's house of the emperor, his place, da, 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 was a chair, which is described in the inventory prepared during the years of 1607 to 1611. So now property of Earl of Ranor of Long Ford Castle. So until in the last year of the Thirty Years' War, so this is, you know, obviously after he had died, they went in there and they looted a whole bunch of the stuff, which was, again, much of the Habsburgs. Treasure had already been removed to Vienna, but the chair was still in the palace and is listed in the inventory. Which that sucks because it's like, you know, because he was a Habsburg, like there's obviously going to be some some righteous uh, you know, Habs- Habsburgian families. It's like, well, that's mine because he was my brother. It's like, well, you didn't like him. You hated him. Why do you want his stuff? Well, that, it, but it, know, there's 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 that power, Russ. What we were talking about earlier, that that amulet or talisman value. It's like you know, mm-hmm. back then when they would take the heads of their enemies. Well, that was a sort of uh, talisman as well. I mean, for those that were in the know, they're like, yo, if you have the head of whoever, you can have it prophesized to you or some sort of divination or whatever it was but yeah it's like by the way uh nostradamus did his a, chart i forgot about a natal that. chart and so he did an astrolo- astrological reading for rudolph when he was a young boy and that's just like maybe that's how he got into it i don't know you know yeah i completely <laughs> forgot about that so yeah you think yeah. of any of the greatest like minds of whatever nostradamus <laughs> i mean like yeah. Come on. I mean, this guy was surrounded by the best of the yep. best of the time. Yeah. And I'm trying to find out here, read quickly. I didn't actually read this. I just saw it and I thought it was interesting. So. Do your uh, search. Control uh, F. What do you want me to look? Well, whatever it is that you were looking for. Uh, I'm just, just reading it quickly. 
But yeah, how I got there is a ma- it can only be a matter of speculation. However, Rucker's first complaint mentioned that it had disappeared with the intention of selling the chair. So I-, I believe it was a gift from what I had read. And after that, it was just taken from him. But yeah, it's a crazy looking chair. Off the second. Um, I was wondering when I was looking up the uh, the Voynich stuff if if Dr. Seuss was influenced by the Voynich manuscript. You know, like this this picture alone is very very much reminds me of Dr. Seuss. Um, I couldn't find obviously any uh, specific stuff, <laughs> but like Dr. Seuss was into some really interesting art. He had a whole subject of art that he would do at night um he called it his midnight art sessions yeah that um he would keep in his own cunts camera if you will and look at this none other than the horned creatures yeah so i did an alchemical breakdown of dr seuss with mario from symbolic studies the kabbalistic dr seuss and how (laughs) how dr seuss had some sort of Kabbalistic meaning behind it, right? Of transcending the tree of life and the different mm-hmm. sephirots, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And yep. the the interesting thing about the Voynich manuscript, which I believe it was, was it Ulongo? I think it was Slick that told me about, or I think I was listening to Vincent Bridges uh, talk about it, how he had seen it. The interesting thing about, because I call it interdimensional literature. And I coined that term on an episode that I did with, with Professor Longo where we talked about these books that unlock maybe perhaps what Carl Jung talked about, the archetypes of reality, these symbols that exist behind the fabric of reality and influence us and the collective conscious, if you will, right? Well, the Voynich manuscript, from you reading it, from you being in the same room as this book, it it invokes this feeling of, I think you get like lightheaded or you start almost to like poison yourself. And Mm -hmm. there's some theories behind that. Uh, I saw Gabe called it a hyper sigil in the chat, but the other, the other theories is that the actual pages of the book and the ink that was used is contains some sort of toxin. So, you know, everybody licks their finger when they're flipping through the pages or whatever it is. Well, don't do that with the Voynich manuscript because you might die and you're intaking some yeah. neurotoxin. Well, that is in <laughs> itself that is itself uh, a magical practice. So if you look at something like the what? Ars Notoria. Yeah, the, the Ars Notoria. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's What's a, a magical uh, practice? Licking your finger and turn the page? No, uh, that's hilarious. But a magical <laughs> practice is writing on paper or on a leaf and then mm-hmm. washing it off and drinking the water after you see so write it out and then you can wash the ink off the paper and then drink it and that that is it's in ours what the fuck what no. what are you talking about man and so that's a grimoire um bro hold up hold on, hold on. what's that called what what the, the grimoire is called the ars notoria the R is Notoria. Mm-hmm. Notoria. It's a uh, grimoire on how to learn everything. Like, that's the promise. It's, it's a four-month procedure, and you have, like, complete knowledge. I mean, like, every language, every everything Listen, that you know. We're going to keep that section for the patron-only hour once we're off of here. Yeah. Subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash the one-on-one podcast to learn how you can 
absorb all the knowledge alchemically mm-hmm. and through the use of this grimoire. I'm, I'm just kidding. But yeah, it's really interesting, bro. They, they talk yeah. about that. And they do that. It is, it's prescribed in there as part of it to write down, I think, names of angels or some sort of prayers on leaves um, oh, and then wash the ink off and drink the water afterwards. Makes sense. Like writing itself, I mean, the history of writing and, mm-hmm. and you know, channeling God energy or, or channeling the energy and writing it down is this form of um, getting the intuition in tune with the the divine. And if you were to get channeled messages from gods as you're writing in that flow, that free flow, uh, free form flow, um, you know, traditionally you would never lift the pen from the page or never lift the quill from the page. That's why they don't teach us cursive anymore because that was a lot more powerful. You're saying you have that huge hyper sigil versus this chicken scratch. I mean, my handwriting is horrible, but the chicken scratch that you do now, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. little by little. I have here the the Codex Gigas, which is the devil's oh. Bible. You want to talk about yes. that? Yeah, pull that up because I was just going to say we we kind of skimmed over that, but this is super important when it comes to um, channeling divine energies. The story behind the Codex Giga is nuts and wild, obviously. But let us not forget how heavy and huge this book is. Massive. Okay. How how many goat skins was it made out of it? I think it was made with over 100 goat skins to make this book. And, um, yeah, it, it, it took two guys to carry the book. Um, and so, yeah, if someone else wants to give the story of how the Codex Gigas came to fruition, um, it is quite a fascinating story. So, uh, I have it here. Let me pull it up real quick. So the Codex Gigas, also known as the Devil's Bible, is famous for two reasons. It's believed to be the world's largest preserved medieval manuscript. Codex Gigas means giant books. And it contains a large full-page portrait of the devil, which I'll pull up here in a second. But it was created for a Bohemian monastery, but was brought to Sweden as spoils of war in the 17th century. Among other things, the manuscript contained a complete Bible, historic texts, magical formulas, and spells. It was a grimoire. It was uh, at least 800 years old. Let me pull up a picture here of... I think there's actual pictures of the actual thing. It contains a number of parts. So it has the Old Testament, New Testament, two works of Josephus, five years. You know that the interesting part is that on um, the Old Testament, I think it, I, and you know, I don't have notes in front of me or anything, but you could verify this one. I think that it's missing the beginning of Genesis or something yes, really I read about trippy. that. It has Genesis, but it's missing, like the Adam and Eve story. Something, something really interesting like that. All right, hold on. Let me pull this up. Hopefully, we don't summon anything by showing this on air, ladies and gentlemen. Let's see. The, here. the other thing too is that it was supposedly written in one night. Um, it was a channeled work that was supposedly written in one night. Uh, and that's kind of why, like, some of the images in there kind of look what some people would call rudimentary. Um, and if that part of the story is true or not, I mean, that's up for obvious debate, but it is huge. I mean, you're writing a, one page is, is two feet long. So it's not like, you know, you can write a book in one night. Sure. Can you, can you write it and draw pictures in one night? Maybe, but on a two foot book, come on. 
get out of here. Yeah, it's like my copy of the Secret Teachings of All Ages. I got the big boy, and it's it's kind of not not this size, but it's pretty big. It's like I think it's twenty four inches long, I think, or twenty two inches long. You know, what's funny is Ash versus Evil Dead that show uh, that came out. What actually touches in on this? You know, they're they're pulling the book itself that is the Evil Dead is basically Oof. the the satan's bible because they, they you know they say it has the face on the front right it's literally made out of dead body skin um and i wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot more uh human skin books out there uh that that we're not touching on or, or just skin books in general um really fascinating part of history uh and you know using you know these different excrements and body parts for alchemical processes it's a huge part of alchemy, a huge part of like this transcendental uh, ability to uh, um, intuitively uh, channel the divine, whatever that version of the divine is in that moment. You know, in, in this case, it's obviously something maybe a little darker than what most, you know, woo woo hippies <laughs> like myself might consider divine now uh, rainbows and butterflies. So uh, I just find that to be really interesting. So the legend goes, according to one version of the legend that was already recorded in the Middle Ages, the scribe was a monk who broke his monastic view, vows, vows and was sentenced to be walled up alive. In order to avoid this harsh penalty, he promised to create in one night a book to glorify the monastery forever, including all human knowledge. Near midnight, he became sure that he could not complete this task alone, so he made a special prayer not addressed to God, but to the fallen angel Lucifer, asking him to asking him to help him finish the book in exchange for his soul. So we have a, a Faustian pact, one of the OG Faustian pact mm -hmm. stories, yeah. right? The yeah. devil it completed the manuscript, and the monk added the devil's picture out of gratitude for his aid. In tests to recreate the work, it is estimated that reproducing only the calligraphy without the illustrations or embellishments would have taken 20 years of non-stop writing damn so we're going to pull up here the picture of the devil and this dude was like yo homie i'm about to get walled up in this mall i need you to come help me and finish this, this book so the devil was like yo i got you fam but i just need one thing and he's like yo what's Zoom that in. he's like yo i need your soul bro Come on. I don't want to give you my soul. Can I give you a butterfinger candy so, bar instead? Romy, would you or would you not do it? If you had to give up, I mean, being walled up alive, which that was a thing back then, they would. Yo, pull up my screen. I got that on there for you. Wow, for bro. everybody. There you go. Where you at? In Mirament. Yikes. So, and also. Check out, yo, we got some fire on the Patreon. We, we brought up the Mellified Man the other day and how crazy that was. That was because of you, Romy. We talked about the Mellified Man, but we got so much fire on the Patreon. Look at that. That dude's being, would you Would you do it, bro? Would you? Oh, yeah. I'm at I'm at peace, bro. I, I'm, I'm with death. Oh, so you'd be cool with getting walled alive? You wouldn't take the deal with the devil? Nah, no need. No? All right, sure. I would just soil myself, keep myself warm, embellish in my own it's smells, like, my It's experience. like the practice of the monks that would mummify themselves for three years in that practice. 
and what at the very end if if you rotted you essentially didn't achieve nirvana and you would be buried but if you did the actual thing correctly you would be worshipped essentially but the idea of mummifying yourself for three years and dying you're literally being buried alive because they put you in this box at the end and you have to ring a bell every day so they know that you're not dead bro for three years oh man and then all right interesting about the bell actually because you brought up rudolph's bell earlier yeah the i mean the the spiritual incantation behind a bell in general to literally you know it's well resonance is one thing Bach tower um, bell, bell tower also yeah the exactly. Bach tower and the and the the bells had the the largest it's yeah, got a name an organ yeah no no it had the largest library of bell of that oh, yeah. certain type of bell and right. yeah i think that the bell the, the way it resonates uh, the yeah. resonance and all that stuff Romy, you've talked about it before but yeah dude i don't know man i think that i wouldn't take the deal i think i'd i think i'd <laughs> Well, first of all, don't break your vows, right? <laughs> what do you have pulled up here? Um, so there was three different uh, here. It says, oh, shit, it's way up here. Sorry. Um, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Rudolph's collection was divided into three categories. Naturalia, covered natural history, zoology, bota- botany, mineralogy, and his collections of naturala, uh, naturalia albums may be the largest still in existence. The next is Scientifica, included clocks, watches, celestial globes, and other instruments. Artificialia, Artificialia, included, uh, included, what the fuck, featured coins, prints, and other examples of fine craftsmanship, right? So, um, the first part of Naturalia is this Bezorus cup. Now, all of these held very spiritual and mystical qualities, um, and they were all very important, and they most likely presumed in a room where everything else uh, had revolved around these special, uh, specific ideals and mysticisms. So this is the bazore cup. Well, what's a bazore? A bazore is a hard mass formed in the intestinal system of a certain ruminant mammal, such as a goat. <laughs> it's like a the gold bazore. Gold bladder. It's a literally a yeah. It's a literal stone. Like it, yeah. it's a it's a it's a gold bladder stone. The word bazore comes from the Persian word pad czar which literally means antidote from at least the 12th century muslim physicians held that drinking vessel containing a bazaar was capable of neutralizing any poison and a consequence these objects were highly prized in this case rudolph's artisans have gone one better by fashioning a large resort into a drinking vessel so this was this was once a stone inside of a goat's belly the top has been sliced off and the middle hollowed out to create a cup the lid of an enamel gold has been affixed above and an oval foot at a vase like stem below has been attached what? to the band by three clasps to avoid harming the precious object itself now here's another uh bazaar here they were often adorned with different precious stones and metals uh queen elizabeth the first also you know obviously a very occulted queen mm-hmm. uh, who ruled from 1558 to 1603 had a bazaar set in a silver ring and some people uh, people sometimes describe the pale beige of her robes as bazaar colored says an article in nautilus um here's another one they, they these were these were everywhere 
Bazaar stones were very, very prevalent. But the thing is, is not only what they did with them, but how they got them, right? So were they farming these animals and making sure that they had the bazaars within them? How, how, how were they finding them? Were, they weren't just finding roadkill, right? Were they like, what, what, how, how? What, um, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Because I actually read about that, about all the different stones that they were fascinated with like gallbladder stones and all these different things that the body created. It... Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the body itself, right? Let's is the alchemical how... chamber, right? You know, boom. So this is a philosopher's stone. This is a stone of the philosoph- uh, 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 not the philosophical, but the physical alchemical chamber. Um, so it obviously has to hold some metaphysical qualities. Mm-hmm. There's something that can be harnessed from this. Um, you know, I, I don't know, bro. It's, it's nuts. I really don't know what to, th- what to think of it just yet. Um, cause I've only dug so deep into it. Cause I was trying to, for this presentation or this chat with you guys was just like, it was like, okay, where do we begin? Like, there's so much shit to talk about, you know? <laughs> and I got, we got almost a hundred slides here. Uh, and I was just like, you know, but the, this is one of the more fascinating things. Uh, but this right here is, looks like a Globus Cruciger. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet again, to touch on that, that cup, um, or it looks like the, uh, the alchemical symbol of, of earth. Um, perhaps obstruction by food, bolus, or bazaar is by no means so uncommon and should be borne in mind in different differential diagnosis of obstruction. The legend of the bazaar stones, which was generally credited in olden times, was that they were crystallized tears of deer. The deer ate snakes, which caused such intense stomach ache that tears were brought into the animal's eyes, and these subsequently congealed beneath the lid as stones. These fell out and men gathered them up. Cases of poisoning and other noxious diseases were said to have been cured by them, and one was used at last resort at the death of King Charles II and may possibly be of interest to the academically minded surgeon to consider. Hold on. It's all good, boy. We got that, that alchemical construction truck in the background there beeping <laughs> away. <laughs> Yo, bring that compost over here. Yeah, uh, baby. Look up for the, uh, the gallbladders. Um, it may possibly be of interest to the academically minded surgeon to consider that which once was a magical stone endowed with life-giving properties is now a cause for surgical intervention and a portent of evil. Interesting. In Europe in the 16th century, though, well before they fell out of favor, a barber surgeon named Ambrose, which is interesting name, right? Mm-hmm. Ambrose, almost like Ambrosia. The food of the hair, gods, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, spoke against them. He's like, uh-uh-uh. Uh, to test the effectiveness of bazaars, he gave the uh, condemned criminal poisonous mercuric chloride and a bazaar. The man died an unpleasant death, reinforcing Pear's belief that they were ineffective. He's like, oh, it cures poison, huh? Well, let me give you some. <laughs> let me give you some poison and then a bazaar directly afterwards to see if it works. So what it's like dick. it's like the Taoist the Taoist alchemist. They're like, yo, we gotta live forever, yo. Let's drink some mercury. And see what happens. You're trying to live forever. But yeah, the, the idea of of the philosopher's stone or the elixir of life, we're thinking in terms of material things, of liquid, of an actual stone. Well, you also have the interpretation how you're saying with spiritual alchemy, well, it's it's not so much a 
right? The elixir of life maybe perhaps isn't a drink or a, a liquid of some sort. What if it's like a breakthrough of space and time itself, something mm-hmm. metaphysical? Uh, right. So it is both. It's the intersection of spiritual and physical alchemy, which is most likely sexual fluids. Uh, you know because those sexual fluids contain life in them the ability to what was that something what was that alchemist that he said all ski 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 was it was it little john was that yeah little john yeah the little john the baptist yeah maybe he was on to something and maybe that right they've been right hidden in plain sight they've been putting these occulted things and all along bro right it's hidden in place and we don't know about it because we we just turned a blind eye to it but maybe he was right from the bezoars to the balls <laughs> exactly exactly that sack baby so yeah absolutely i mean and, and look at the representation bro you got right this very phallic here this this globus cruciger and and i mean who knows bro i think that these dudes were also onto that right they have the fish headed cap right the the pope with the with the fish head cap thing whatever what you know so they, they point out other things that again it's it's symbolism for a reason bro i mean we're just thinking outside the box <laughs> what is that this is one of his other famous cups yeah that's dope that's crazy right and look it's got the tiny little crown on top like <laughs> dude like all his stuff that he had was so highly detailed Sir um, Little John the Baptist to sweat drop down the Bezor stone. <laughs> Bezor stone. Oh, man. Little John oh, the Baptist. Guy, this this guy was very... Uh, is that the mineralogy sort of, guy? Yeah. Yeah, yes. that's him. Yes. Yes. Who, like, all this stuff was, like, all the information, basically, that, like, Rudolph was given about this was given to him from, uh, Ence, let's say his name, Anselmus. Debut. He like basically is the father of mineralogy. Um, he was a Flemish humanist mineralogist, physician, and naturalist, along with a German known as Gregoris Agricola, very famous. Debut was responsible for establishing modern mineralogy. Debut was an avid mineral collector who traveled widely to various mining regions in Germany, Bohemia, and Silesia to collect samples. His definitive work on the subject. Uh, was the Gemma, the Gemarium de Lapidum Historia, the history of gems, basically. Mm-hmm. Debut was also gifted a drought, as a gifted draftsman who made many natural history illustrations, developed a natural history taxonomy. So he created lapidary too, the first lapidary, basically. Interesting. So I want to add that the entire court of Rudolph the second. I mean, we could do an episode on each and every single one of these guys, by the way, which we probably will. I mean, we could probably do a series of the magic circle of Rudolph the second. You have Tycho Brahe, you have Nostradamus, you had John D, Edward Kelly, you had all the greatest. And I want to talk a little bit about Edward Kelly after you're done, Romy, and, and John D when they went and visited him. Because I think that's an interesting story. And you can think of Rudolph as the stereotypical, right, the bored king that's just sitting there waiting for them to talk like stoic <laughs> right very they, they 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 talked to how they didn't have a a sense of humor when they were very stoic you know during during whenever people would be talking so i imagine john d telling him like yo you're possessed by demons 
and we need to form a one world hermetic religion because these angels told me <laughs> can you imagine that bro oh my god and he believed it he would well so we didn't even touch on the fact that uh so it's important that he had the bizarre cup because he constantly thought that he was going to get poisoned he was super paranoid um that somebody was out to get him right whether or not it was his family whether or not because i mean you're an emperor right you're a king someone's coming to take the crown you don't get to be king for long like someone's gonna kill you uh and so I think the Bazaar's Cup was part of that his special uh, piece. You know, he needed as much magic on his side in order to uh, to not die. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, dude, guy is nuts, bro. It's so crazy. Such a good topic to talk about for life. I mean, this is scholars, different scholars. Like, this is their life's work, a lot of people. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Rudolph in Prague. Like, this is their entire life. So to think we can cover it all in, in a three-hour podcast is just is ridiculous. <laughs> and that's what blows my mind, too, with, like, right? I, I envy people who can just – because I'm on, like, a sort of a schedule when it comes to podcasting where I have to pump out content. Mm-hmm. And then in between these type of things, I have to also read for other – presentations i have or if i'm gonna have an author on or whatever but how you're saying bro we're talking about things that quite literally people spend their entire lives people get doctorates and phds Mm and and write the esoterica of rudolph or john d or you name it and and the renaissance whatever it is and they spend their entire life and then here we are (laughs) just a couple regular guys cracking dick jokes talking about right the philosopher's stone and and balls and bizarre stones and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. Is this was this part of his collection as well? This rhino that 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 cup looks baller, bro. Yeah, dude. Well, this cup. I don't know why I put this slide in in between that, but uh, this is also a rhinoceros horn cup too. Uh, and it's funny to you know symbolize the horn with the horn and um. I mean, we talked a little bit about the Templars earlier. Now we're not even going to get into that, but you know, the horned, the three-headed, three-headed horned uh, uh, deity um, is, is very significant. But yeah, dude, isn't this epic? Epic, 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 epic. Um, rhinoceros horn is another natural substance traditionally credited with medicinal powers. Although today it is regarded as an aphrodisiac and remedy for impotence. Hey, oh. Uh, in folk medicine, in the court of Rudolph II, it was rather supposed to repel calumny evil and the forces of the underworld. Hence the dichotomy of menace and mollification, which recurs across mm. the remarkable object. Warthog tusk, believed to be the horns of a mythical dragon called Waivian, are refashioned to provide the horns of a two-headed beast with fangs bared in the front. But subdued by restraints in the back, in his mouth is a fossilized shark's tooth, regarded as offering protection against poison. The lid below crawls with beetles, lizards, frogs, and other subterranean creatures, probably cast from uh, from like in Nuremberg. Likewise, the rhinoceros horn itself has been carved to depict newts, insects, animal heads, and branches of coral. But above them emerge gentle human faces and symbols of healing power and the cosmos. Again, very talismanic in nature, right? That microcosm to evoke the the macro. 
And, dude, I remember as a kid going to church, and whenever they would have that horn, that because I went Pentecostal, they would have the horn. They would blow the horn during the, the services. And, bro, that horn, whenever you would get a whiff of it, bro, it smelled Oof. like death. Dude, it smelled like death, bro. I was like, you know, like, the, <laughs> I don't know what animal it is. It's like some... The ram. Is it a ram? Is it a ram's horn? Yeah. Oh my god, bro! It smelled so bad <laughs> when I <laughs> they would put their mouth on it and be blowing Gross. that thing. Yeah, dude, it's just horrible. <laughs> um, I I was like, I thought it was kind of interesting, like the horn, the cornucopia, and the the horn, the horn cup. Mm. Um, you know, like because the cornucopia was like this bounty this endless you know you could just like keep dumping out fruits and veggies fruits and veggies and if uh if anything you know especially that vertumnus painting that very famous vertumnus painting is a cornucopia itself and so i thought that was kind of significant symbolic um Mm -hmm. slightly rhinoceros horns had long been venerated in china as possessing magical and medicinal properties but in the 16th century europe the rhinoceros was already creating a mythology of itself the famous woodcut print of a rhinoceros by none other than albrecht Dürer, created in 1515 was extremely popular throughout europe and had a huge cultural impact the sultan mutarbar shah ii ruler of cambay had presented the beast as a diplomatic gift to Afonso de Abarquerque, <laughs> sorry, uh, governor of Portuguese India, who then forwarded it to King Manuel I of Portugal. This was first the first living rhinoceros that had been seen in Europe since Roman times. It created a huge stir, inspiring stonemasons to complete the, wow. uh, the Manuline Bellum Tower, then under construction with rhinoceros horn heads as gargoyles. A sculpture of rhinoceros based on Dura's image was placed at the base of an obelisk placed in front of the church and the sepulchre in the Rue Saint-Denis of Paris in 1549, the royal entry welcoming the arrival of new King France Henry II. Um, I, I thought that was kind of interesting also because you know, in uh, in Egyptian stories, the mother is the hippo. Um, you know, she is the, the the pregnant one, the one that bursts life. And uh, you know, hippos and rhinos are very similar, in my opinion. And uh, you know, it's almost like the masculine version of the hippo. Uh-huh. So, like the father, uh, the father would be the rhino. I that that's speculative, obviously. Um, but I that's why another reason why I thought that was really significant that they would put that on the bottom of an obelisk, um, and have that there, almost like a sign of like you know the patriarchal or, or the or the phallus. Mm-hmm. Here's another rhino horn carved dragon. Look at this thing. Wow, that's wild looking, man. If you look up William Blake, uh. Yes, I do love William Blake. He has a painting. I think it's called Leviathan. It's like Leviathan and Behemoth. And it's a painting that he made uh, as part of his Jerusalem works. And it was a it was a picture of basically the battle at the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of what you were just saying where it's this masculine feminine type thing. And the feminine 
it, the world ends sort of with a battle between these two creatures. Is it this um, one or this one? Yeah, it's that one. Is this That's one? That's the one. Another one before. This one. Um, one of them is oh, wow. a is a rhinoceros, more or less. I mean, he kind of changes it up where it has like tusks instead of a horn, but it's based on a rhinoceros. And then it's battling. So that's Behemoth, the the rhino. And then it's battling Leviathan, which is like a sea monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is. It's. I mean, of course, it's highly symbolic but it's re- really interesting it's in that same tradition of like rhino yeah. occultism you know yeah yeah yeah. And, i never and, i never made know, that connection actually with the rhino and the because you don't see rhinos in alchemical paintings you see more dragons and you see yeah more... they came a little later like that's what he was saying interesting that's yeah it's wild and you know dragons obviously serpentine uh energy associated with feminine uh you know, mm-hmm. uh, dra- dragons and serpents always kind of associated with that. Super interesting. The last little one I have here for uh, the three types of uh, uh, things that you would find in his cabinet of curiosities, so bro. <laughs> the cabinet of curiosities, um, which is really rare and fascinating. <laughs> this story is super cool. Is, um, is an ewer made from a Seychelles nut. So the most extravagant of these three objects, which was also the rarest, okay, even more rare than a bazaar stone, more rare than a rhinoceros horn, was the Seychelles nut. It is half of a hollowed nut from the species. Uh, it's a it's a place it's a type of palm. I'm not going to try to say these fucking names. Sorry, uh, a plant endemic on only two small islands of the Seychelles Arca, archipelago. Archipelago. Uh, since these islands were uninhabited and virtually unknown before the 1740s, the origin of the Seychelles nut remained a complete mystery during the 17th century. The nut is the largest fruit of any plant in the world, weighing up to 42 kilograms. When one of these fruits falls into the sea, its great weight and density that it sinks to, straight to the bottom of the ocean, and after a considerable period on the seabed, the husk falls away and the internal parts of the nuts decay and gases forming inside cause the nut to rise from the surface. These dense nuts can drift for thousands of kilometers on ocean currents without decaying further and were known as prized in they were known and very prized in medieval times in many parts of the Indian Ocean. Seamen from the Malaysia from over 5000 kilometers away occasionally observed cocoa de mere nuts falling upwards from the sea floor. From this, they concluded that these nuts must grow on underwater trees in a forest at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, hence the name sea coconut from the French coco de mer, which is still commonly used today. Early European explorers communicated this lore to eager readers back home. The first great historian of Portuguese exploits in Asia and added testimony regarding the healing properties of the Coca de Mer, which he thought to be superior to even those known of the precious stone bazaar. Local peoples prized it accordingly. In the Maldives, 2,000 kilometers east of the Seychelles, any sea coconut found in the ocean or on the shore was regarded as property of the king, and anyone withholding such a nut for himself or selling it to another could face the death of penalty. Rudolf II nevertheless managed to purchase one of these for the vast sum of 
thousand gold florins. Hence the exquisite craftsmanship deployed in creating the marine images which dominate the work. Neptune rides on Hippo, can't be, in the lid of his trident, missing two back-to-back tritons carrying the pitcher, which has been hollowed out in the uh hollowed out to carry liquid the half nut forms a shape of a ship which further maritime motifs carved into the surface <laughs> you know what all, what other nuts float bro <laughs> these nuts <laughs> these nuts. do i have that sound hold on do I? no i don't have that sound oh well anyways yeah you can't talk about apologies nuts. for this low low res picture of this yeah if, magnet- if that nut don't stop bro <laughs> oh no what no what the fuck just happened oh, god man. damn that's gonna bring me back to the top uh, so very interesting collection of curiosities the cabinet of curiosities right it was yep. a phenomenon during the time and it was again to serve as a sort of microcosm to the macro and it was more of for for rudolph it was more of a contemplation right place where he could go and reflect and think about whatever and also surfer his posse was like yo let's go through here and let's just let's learn some stuff longo did you have anything to add about that oh your brother's on the chats getting pissed <laughs> what he said the fuck are you <laughs> oh man it's all good bro uh no i don't have anything to add that was crazy i've never heard any of that though yeah that's, that's wild dude I, I like that they thought like that they literally thought there was a forest on the on the ocean floor that was just floating up these coconuts, which further like kind of employs this Indian Lemurian connection of It makes me think of the of epic the, of Gilgamesh where he has to swim at the bottom to pick whatever what, what was it, a plant or something like that at the bottom of the ocean? And he falls asleep on the way down. You know the Gilgamesh? You ever the Epic of Gilgamesh. The yeah, old... no Gilgamesh. But I don't know that story specifically. <laughs> the oldest, the oldest piece of literature. Do you have anything to add to that, Longo? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where he has to go down and pick some magical plant or something at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. Where and it's even in the Bible where he, he has to go into uh, the mouth of the whale. Yes. You know, like that sort of. Stuff. And Pinocchio does the same thing. It, it's kind of a. In the ocean is. The unconscious to symbolically. Uh, oh, Pinocchio God. deserves an entire Oof. breakdown, dude. What do you got here, bro? You have Giordano Bruno. I mean, dude, Giordano Bruno deserves a whole show. I, I think yeah. maybe we should almost skip over this yeah, and just I, be like, we Giordano should... Bruno was the father of, you know, a lot of. In this book, they said that he was, he basically came up with the idea of the, the original computer. Let's just put it at that. Yeah, it was based. I, I think he brings up Raymond Lowell as well because Lowell, uh, the Lowellian, uh, the 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 idea of the, the first analog computer. I think it was Raymond Lowell. He was trying to again, the idea of technology, the technology that we know today, is sprouted from the mystical. It's it's about proving the existence of something uh, metaphysical, right? Charles Babbage, the guy that the father of the modern day computer. Well, he tried to summon the devil, right? And the reason that he wanted to come up with with the computer was to prove the existence of God. And I mean, he writes about this in his books. I mean, he, he, this is documented. And also you have Leibniz, which was obsessed with Descartes and his whole monadology where they wanted to break God down into 
this into a substance, right? We're talking about alchemy. Well, they wanted to break God down to a substance. You had John D and the Monist Hieroglyphica that was also, it, wasn't it given to Rudolph? Was it for Rudolph or Maximilian? I don't, I don't remember who it was. I believe it was for Rudolph. And he's like, yo, this is too dense for me, bro. I, I don't understand it. So he gave that because it was, it was traditional back then to write a piece, uh, a piece of literature and dedicate it to whatever emperor mm -hmm. king he was yep. in power at the time. And I believe it was the Monus Hieroglyphica. Let me look it up here real quick. Was written for, for Rudolph II. And of course, Elias Ashmole. Which is hilarious to say that the Monus Hieroglyphica is too dense for him while he had the Codex Giga and the Voynich manuscript. <laughs> and like the, the, the Monus Hieroglyphica is like 20 pages, you know, <laughs> like or something like, uh, I mean, obviously it's like alchemically and cypherically deep, but uh, I find that kind of funny. Can't find who he dedicated it to, but I'm pretty sure it was dedicated to one of the comments mentions that Pinocchio is a homunculus. A hundred percent. I mean, you said oh, it. Not uh, me. yeah. Yep. Yep. No, we will do a Pinocchio show, no doubt. We're, I want to do a Pokemon show, an alchemical breakdown of Pokemon, and I want to do. We can do Pinocchio. Oh. So. Okay. Yeah, I, Pokemon's a huge universe. I don't even. But it's uh, very alchemical. I mean, you have all the the elements and all that stuff. I mean, I think it'd be a fun show to do with Gabe. And just like have at it. Could okay, I can't find the connection with Rudolph. All right, right here. So Monus Hieroglyphica. I th I'm pretty sure it was for, for Rudolph. Anyways, the idea of breaking God down to like this this substance, right? To use it for whatever for as a talisman. Well, the Monus Hieroglyphica was just that. It was a way of if you were to intake the Monus Hieroglyphica, you'd become invisible or something along those lines. Well. Essentially, the, the conspiracy is that John D's the demiurge and he was able to transcend reality and, and manipulate <laughs> it because of the Monus Hieroglyphica. Again, it's just speculation, but let's see here. What else you got there? You want to talk about the end of this dude's life? So at the end of, the, of his life, he was pretty much overtaken and all stripped yep. of all power. His brother took all power. And at the very end of his life, how old was he when he died? Let's see here. He was... 59 years old when he died and he was pretty much penniless didn't have anything to his name other than the empty title of holy roman emperor and then shortly after his death when his brother took over was the 30 years war now you had an interesting take on why he was always sad Romy. and i mean we can get into speculation at this point because, I mean, we've pretty much talked about his life and his his ideas. He was very into hermeticism, alchemy, the occult, the metaphysical. But you had an interesting thing that you told me over the phone as to why he was sad and depressed. You remember what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Uh, please go, though. Please go. No, I wanted you to explain it because you, what you were telling me made a lot of sense to me that he was sad because he understood that his family was at the core of what was to come. Almost like some prophetic dream type of thing, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I think he was sad for all of the... I mean, once you pierce the veil, right? I think he pierced the veil at a very young age. And I think he had somebody who was his role model 
that um, kind of gave him the, the early on truths, or he was just very naturally highly intuitive and was able to see through the bullshit. Um, maybe it was the trauma that he induced as a child, seeing all these people burnt alive. Um, but I think, I think one of the main melancholic, melancholic types of things is that he had one, a lot of insecurities too, um, for being slightly what you might consider deformed or part of this like Habsburgian bloodline. And, and he may be just homosexual as well. Yeah. Also that too, brother. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. But let me Um, add that during Roman times and in Greek times, I guess, ancient Rome, Greco Roman, whatever it was, it was not uncommon, not uncommon to have like a, was it a, like a, a boy prostitute, I guess you could call it. I mean, so but it, it, what is uncommon is for the Holy Roman Emperor not to have a wife. Yes, he talked yep. about marrying a lot and never did actually marry. Yep. Did he actually? Did you read about his son? Yes. Yeah, so I wanted to. Yeah, we forgot to talk about his. It was it Don Don Carlos or something. One of his nephews. Don Julius. It's crazy. Don Julius, Julius was his his son, and or was it Julia? Julio or something like that. Yeah. Anyways, the point the that Caesar. that they would go they would go crazy. I don't think there were any Julios in, in Bohemia. <laughs> they they would go crazy, and one of his sons actually ended up unaliving one of his wives or lady friends, if you will, uh, yeah. and he ended up committing. He ended up being in prison after the fact and going crazy in prison. So this this Mad King esque. The details are way worse. Uh, he, he was a. Uh, Do you have the details? Sort of. I don't have like in front of me, but he uh, killed basically his girlfriend. It was a girl that he met and and took home and killed her and butchered her. Mm-hmm. He yep. mutilated the body. He, he disfigured her and cut her up into pieces. Um, and then his dad was like, yeah, Rudolph was like, yeah, it's not going to fly. <laughs> so they had to have him locked up. And he lived out only like a few more years before he dies, like a ruptured appendix. appendix. Um, Stress. Yeah. But he lived in complete squalor in prison. Like he put his shit on the walls yep. and the whole thing. Like it was a real disaster. And it's yeah, it's crazy. I read that that he cut his he cut his wife up into many pieces, and like basically thought he was going to get away with it because he was like the son of Rudolph. Yeah, <laughs> like come on, get out of here, bro. Like, you... but I think that's just part of the Habsburgian curse. I wonder. I was trying to find, and this was pretty last minute. I was trying to find like if there was like an ancient curse or or something that like there was a battle between these family bloodlines or something. You know, not that I believe in curses or anything, but, you know, I was seeing if there was any lore on that, that there there was a family curse. Like, I don't know, man. Like, mm. they were all nuts. And that was probably just yeah. because of the inbreeding. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the family curse is marrying your first cousin <laughs> and then repeating that like 20 times. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> Just content, yeah. Just refining. No yeah, no curses needed at that point. 
Oh, funny about cursive, huh? Well, yeah, like the typing or writing in cursive style and cursing. And, uh, so real quick, you share my screen. I'm going to just get these last slides out of the way and then I'm done. No more. But this shit, I saved the best for last, in my opinion. Um, one of my favorite alchemists I was able to find in his circles uh, was this guy named Oswald Kroll. Now, this guy was... Right, he wrote down. You can find, and I'll share this in the show notes or on the comments or something. Um, his so we've been talking about talismans, and I don't want to bring it up until now. What so talisman isn't just you know a stone that you have wrapped in gold and precious metals, right? They believe that you had to take those precious metals and you had to, uh, you had to imbue them with other things now a little bit about kroll uh the kroll show nick kroll right this this bloodline lives on uh kroll believed alistair that crowley. alistair crowley exactly and dude uh oswald kroll is is no no joke when it comes to magic like this guy was one of rudolph the second's favorite magic magical people that he had in his circles one of his best friends now, Kroll believed that chemistry and alchemy were two halves of a tightly related field in the same way that organic and inorganic chemistry are related. He used the framework of Paracelsus work to organize his beliefs about the geometrically important relationships between various forms of matter and alchemical reactions from rectangles to megagons. And I was like, what is a megagon? A megagon <laughs> is a one million times gong a polygon with one million sides creating this type of shape this is a megagon and i was like well talk about gong therapy um kroll believed that god and nature have put their signatures on all their works in the creation from the highest stars to the smallest pebbles it is the task of the adept to read the divine book of signatures and to understand the correspondences, the sympathies, and the antipathies in all things. Unfortunately, modern humans uh, lack the grammar of this arcane language. It is to be found in the hermetic hieroglyphs and the sacred letters of Thoth in the universal language of the Logos, which correspond to the laws of geometry, form, and the movement and equilibrium. The adept's job, therefore, is to seek and restore the lost wisdom of the ancients, which we are all fucking doing. Everybody involved in this conversation right now, everybody in the chats, we are absolutely doing this. We are the adepts of our time. Okay, We are, we are seeking to restore the lost wisdom of the ancients. What's that? What's that? Let's fucking go, okay? So Kroll combined alchemy, astrology, and magic in his work. In order to make an amulet, he recommended, for instance, these following ingredients. Two ounces of toads dried in the air in the sun, reduced to a powder. The menstruum of young girls, as much as you can get. Crystals of white arsenic, an ounce and a half of red arsenic, three drams of root dittany. Equal amount of tormentil, one dram of unpierced pearl, one dram of coral, one saffron, and everything must be then reduced into a fine powder to make into a paste when the sun and moon are in Scorpio and when the moon is new. The paste then should be fashioned around an amulet. Yikes. Don't tell me you did that, bro. I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised. What the fuck? 
Um, so yo, real quick before you get into that, I yeah. found, and it's Don Giulio. So it's G I U L. Yeah. So again, known as Julius Caesar and Don Juan of Austria. So here, the exact number of children Rudolph had with his long-suffering companion is not clear. One source says six, of which three were girls and three boys, and another says eight, of which four were boys and four girls. They had mixed destinies. The oldest daughter, Caroline, seemed to have married into the Borges family, but her two sisters were cheated to nunneries in Vienna and Madrid. And uh, of the younger sons, one was killed by a friend in an alley in Vienna in a dispute over a prostitute. Another died in the Thirty Years' War. Now, this is what, we're, what we were talking about. None of the children seem to have been remarkable, except for Don. Gu- I'm going to say Julio, who was also known as Julius Caesar and Don Juan of Austria. He seems to have been Rudolph's favorite and shared with him a fascination for clocks and mechanical instruments. But he was cursed with an unfortunate horoscope in the Habsburgian Portuguese inheritance and soon started to show signs of the same malady which afflicted don carlos the son of philip ii which he also went mad and they had locked him away at nine he started having epileptic fits at 16 he began scandalizing the court with his arrogance and his cruelty to animals and servants so he was like a little asshole again the game of thrones that one character the what's the dude's name the the one with the with the blonde hair Galfrey or whatever. So again, very, very Game of Thrones-esque. In 1606, Rudolph had to send him away to the court of Krumlov Castle in southern Bohemia. As a savage huntsman, Don Julio lived there among weapons, fierce dogs, and uncured skins preying on local girls. So then, later on, if that was not bad enough, Rudolph's melancholy was further deepened by the news of his favorite son, Don Julio, banished to Kromlov Castle. He had spent his days in hunting and debauchery. One day he went too far. He seized, raped, and held captive a barber's daughter called Maruska from the local village. When after a month she ran away, he threatened to kill her and her father if she did not come back. On 17 February 1608, the day after her return, servants forced the door to Don Julio's apartment to find the girl hacked to pieces with a hunting knife, her eyes gouged out, her teeth broken, and her ears cut off. The Holy Roman Emperor's oldest and favorite son, naked and covered in excrement, was embracing his victim. He was confined to a chamber with the barred windows. Four months later, he died like his cousin, Don Carlos, in mysterious circumstances. So, again, maybe he was like, yo, this... King's son is a problem. Let's take care of him. Bada bing, bada boom. But yeah, that was one of his sons. I mean, towards the end of Rudolph's life, I mean, everything kind of sort of came crumbling down on him, right? Like he was, and he wasn't a bad emperor either. He wasn't a bad ruler, but everything just kind of caved in on itself. And how you're saying maybe his him being so lenient to all these open religions led to this war. And yeah. He ultimately lost power to his brother and was stripped of everything except for his title at the very end of his life. But yeah, pretty crazy life. And I and I was just reading this whole story and I was like, damn, I kind of felt bad for the guy. Yeah. He yeah. refused, by the way, at on his deathbed, he refused the sacramental Sacram- rights. So like his father. To, yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. To see a priest. James Joyce also did that. Yikes. You know, you got to be pretty gangsta to refuse it on your deathbed, you know. Mm-hmm. Most people are like, oh, I can't hurt, you know. <laughs> These guys are going down with the ship. Maybe he knew, bro. 
Maybe he knew yeah. that we're all being trolled and there's really nothing on the other side and it's just My favorite is Constantine who got baptized on his deathbed. Yeah. Have I told you that? Yeah. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. He didn't because he thought, you know, what's the point of getting baptized and then sinning? Yeah. Before I die. <laughs> just save it for the so end. <laughs> so I'll just wait to get baptized like thirty seconds before I die. So I enter heaven as just like this purified bat purely baptized being, you know, it's like mm-hmm. hilarious. Mm-hmm. Thought he could outsmart the system. <laughs> so he's not wrong. What do you yeah. got? What do you got there, homie Romy? This? Oh man. I made some uh some celebratory. I'm talking cake about last your night. fucking slide, bro. Now you're whatever. Jeez. Oh. <laughs> whatever. I made a wildflower chantilly cake or whatever. You fucking asshole. I was kidding. I love you. Fucking love you, buddy. Okay. Um. So I wanted to share more of these crazy alchemical recipes that Kroll uh has, and these are all on document. I want to share the link with you guys here later. But if you guys are um, curious how to restore your memory, uh, well. We have it for you. So, okay. If you want to restore your memory, you're going to need these herbs. You're going to need mace, kubeba, cloves, three of each, the leaves of senna, crystals of tartar, ginger, ground pine, root of calamus, aromat, gentian, seeds of cumin, mountain silver, anise, ameos, dacius, wild alexander, spikenard of India, the magistry of coral and pearls. Reduce them all into a powder, which thus must be taken in the first month, morning and evening, three hours before meat and wine or other convenient liquor. In the second month, only in the mornings. In the third month, in the mornings, thrice in a week. In the fourth month, twice in a week, and so forth for certain months. In comforting and restoring the memory of admirable use, the aqua magnum Okay, let's zoom in on this, y'all. Aqua magna animated, animated is <laughs> described in the second part of his marrow of distillations. It is more powerful, the species of anacardine, to be extracted with it. Okay, so this is some crazy You know what shit. I love about – so go to the first one, dude. What I love about all these recipes, right? Like if you look at the first one in restoring lost memory, especially in the age, powder of trithemius, so-called – well, much help. And then it's like, is that the trithemius that like we like the, the steno, what is it? Stenographia, I think is the, the, the OG cryptographer. Like that's the guy who invented cryptography. I think it was. Yeah. It's like yeah. the powder the of powder trithemius. Body. Yeah. It's like the, whenever you read like a homunculus thing, there's always one ingredient that you don't know what it is. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go ahead and try it. It's like, and then the stone of the sun. What does that even mean? You know what I'm saying? Like it always has like some obscure things. Like there's like the powder of trithemius. Oh, I know that one, right? I got some in my in my cabinet of curiosities, right? So no, for real. I mean, that's that's the cryptic uh, essence of alchemy, right? In the alchemical text, it, it blows a- my mind, man. Like the whole study of alchemy and and all these crazy things that we talk about. That the <laughs> fact that they're an actual concept or an actual thing. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on that, Longo? Where do you think that these dudes were trolling everybody and they were just like speaking in code to one another and they knew that there was nothing to it, or that they were actually onto something and they were like, "Yo, let's speak in code," because you know only the initiated can have this sort of thing. Because like with, with 
alchemy in particular. Yeah, with with alchemy because I I always sit between these two camps of like it was all bullshit and then it was like they were really on something, right? Like I fight between those two. They were really on to something, but to me, yeah, it's symbolic. So it, it is like a spiritual alchemy, like a psychological individuation. Uh, sort of a becoming whole and integrating parts of the self that are fractured, things like that. Um, that's what it seems like to me, at least, because you have to understand that. Um, and also, they were doing some some real science, like real chemistry. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, present, and that was seen as being secretive. So you didn't want to, you know, let these secrets out because that kind of stuff was was seemingly mm-hmm. magical mm-hmm. um and so they wanted to communicate in code uh on that part so Codes and hoes, you know to some degree they were doing to some degree all of the above are true they were speaking in in a um in a, in a code scientifically and so it's multi-layered in a code that has to do with um Mm-hmm. with individuation and in, in the psyche yeah yeah and maybe that's why carl Jung was also into alchemy i haven't dug into i have all his books but i haven't dug into uh, right psychology and alchemy i think it's the book man and his symbols is the first yeah. one i'm gonna read because I, I heard that's a good introduction there's, there's one i can't remember if it, i think it was the green lion in um alchemy mm-hmm. it represents it's, it's a real sort of chemical equation and Mm -hmm. the green lion is like some sort of um some sort of chemical compound and Mm -hmm. it was like a secret like don't Mm -hmm. don't let anyone know but you know on this piece of paper and it's got like a green lion eating a sun and they'll be able to replicate it if they're in on it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we know they were doing that for sure what we're speculating on is whether or not the psychological stuff is on purpose or if you're just like sort of seeing shapes and clouds, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Um, yeah. But I think it's on purpose. It, it, it's just too good. Just like myths. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, yeah. Either. Extremely symbolic. Yeah. yeah it, it's just, it's too spot on. And when you think about it, it was not even that long ago. If you if really think about it, this wasn't that long ago. It was fairly recent. I mean, yeah. Right. It was well, a couple hundred years ago, really, but it wasn't that long ago that this was happening and these symbols and all. I want to do an episode of straight, just like looking at alchemical plates and just like trying to decipher yes. <laughs> them and see what's, yeah. you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, cause I love looking at that type of art and it's, it's really fascinating. We should do like a, well, you know, we've for, for fans of the show, and, and people who subscribe to the Patreon, we had those dopamine deep dives we were doing consistently for a while. Uh, I think that was a, a great crew uh, for that. And Longo would be in, in, in a fantastic addition to that too. But uh, I'd love that, dude. Like just to look at these things and really try to truly break it down. Because, you know, what's interesting is is thinking about how fast we've advanced technologically, right? Quote, unquote, advanced technologically. And like how within a span of 20 years, 30 years, you know, you come from having a, a mundane flip flown to having like, you know, a super small touchscreen that you just have every piece of information at your fingertips. Well, it was the same way in this Renaissance period of, you know, you had 20 inventors working on, uh, you know, these books and these, <clears throat> these alchemical texts It was happening very fast. 
So, you know, if you look at the past thousand years, which is crazy to be like, yeah, that's not that long of a time. Well, if we live a hundred years old, right, that's only 10 of our family members is, is, is in a century, Mm -hmm. you know, so a hundred of our family members is, is a thousand years ago. You know, I, I I don't know, like I'm, I'm, I'm soapboxing it here somewhat, but it's like, I, I don't even know what the fuck I'm trying to say. Y'all life is crazy. (laughs) Reality is nuts. And we're unfolding the fruits of the labor here. You know what I mean? Like what is really going on? I found the green lion, by the way, I looked it up. Oh yeah. Pull that shit up brother. Yeah. The green lion eating the sun, right? Yeah. It's the aqua regia regia. Um, and it's, they called it the, which means royal water. It's a mixture of nitric acid and hydrochloric acid, but in a molar ratio of one to three. But what if that fuming liquid, colorless, and it dissolves metals, noble metals? What I'm saying is, what if that's what they want you to believe? You know what I mean? Like, what if that's right? That's that's the practical physical alchemy. That's like what happens when you do mix these things. Because I do think that what I love about alchemy is that. It's a a topic that's right. We talked about this interdimensional where it's a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a psychological thing. And I think perhaps how Manly P. Hall puts it, the seven seals, any scripture and that can be holy scripture, ancient scripture, whatever kind of script, alchemical scripture, whatever. There are seven different ways of interpreting it, right? You have the historical, you have the allegorical, you have the, the, whatever there's there's the literal there's different interpretations of it and i think that that's why these alchemists would focus on redoing these experiments over and over and over and over again because they needed to achieve it on certain different levels and once you were able to unlock that you would hit that magnum opus and it's like boom you would piece out of this dimension and they just not exist i mean that's that's the only way you could really put it not, like just dissolve out of reality i mean that that's but again i don't know what, what do you what do you yeah. think i mean i think for the next one i think we should do another one maybe one of these other guys either bruno or or you had kepler you had edward kelly john d you had descartes after the fact i mean there's just so many names that we can go down the list and but we'll figure it out for the next one to see who we break down, and Definitely I think like Bruno at some point. Bruno, Bruno's super interesting, right? So I don't know. Maybe we'll do Bruno. What What do you think, Longo? Who, who do you Who do you like in this magic circle the most? If you had to pick, mm. I know that's a hard question, but yeah, probably probably Giordano, Bruno, Bruno. I mean, John D is always really interesting, but he's like. You can do a whole series on him. You can't even just do one video. It's almost like Carlos Castaneda. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, we'll figure it out for the next one. I think this was... Is there anything else you wanted to add, Romy, before we get the fuck out Um, I mean, there's so much, bro. I, I think it's good to maybe just cap it. Well, okay, let's talk about Rudolph for, for a second. We, we did slightly touch on the fact that he was most likely strategically taken out of Mm -hmm. power right Mm -hmm. like he was in power for such a long time fucking up in the eyes of his family that it wouldn't surprise me at all that like the reason he thought he was going to constantly get poisoned is because one of his 15 siblings was coming for the throne and at the very end Um, he fired everybody too right i forgot to mention he fired everybody and only kept like two people in his court 
to like be with him because he again he didn't trust anybody at the very end. He was like, "Yo, they're gonna kill me," and you said you even yeah. said that they might have they might have murdered him. I think so. I think that's probably what happened. Um, I mean, you know, it's just like anybody else who gets too close to the truth. You know, even though he was in Habsburg, he's not the most important royal family. There's an even more secretive family bloodline that was that was truly running the strings underneath it all. Um, it would be it's interesting to look at the papacy right and in comparison to the holy roman empire um since they were on their own different things as much as the holy roman empire was like fuck you vatican you don't get a fuck with us they were also like well you're not gonna fuck with us right because yeah. we got our own thing going on like we got massive amounts of dragon bloodline symbolism and i'm sure they were saying their we spies exactly exactly so that's something we absolutely need to cover is the other flip of the script and go more onto the papacy reign because the house of Solomon, Solomonic magic is fully embedded in there. I mean, you look at the seal of the popes and it's, it's a hundred percent the seal of Solomon. Um, I've done that weave before on a couple of podcasts and, and, and so. And to add really quickly, El Escorial was also allegedly modeled after where Rudolph lived as a young boy was, allegedly modeled after the temple of solomon i forgot to say that at the beginning but yeah we have we have all these ideas again maybe he was some sort of scapegoat maybe like a pseudo sacrifice of some sorts towards the end of his life and then people keep bringing up rudolph the red-nosed reindeer in the chat but you have rudolph the red-nosed reindeer you have Tycho brahi where he had his nose cut off so again it's all very we've gone over that too and uh not not to say that that's a rudimentary by any means, not to be a fucking dick, but no, we'd gone we'd gone over that when we first started diving into this magic circle months ago. You remember that, brother? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But you know, I'll be honest, I didn't really think about Rudolph uh, being that interesting, and I think that they this would be a good movie, man. Like if, if his life, holy like, shit, like a show. Like didn't they do the Borges or something like that on HBO? Like the the I never saw it, the, bourgeois- but, the bourgeoisie or something like that, right? Wasn't it an HBO show? I swear it was. I'm not sure. I'm excited to see this. Uh, everybody should uh, go watch this new Nicolas Cage movie called Renfield. Coming out on Friday. Out. Uh, it's going to be good. You know, just another vampire situation. That'll be fun. Uh, but also everybody in the chat keeps talking about this episode that you dropped earlier this morning, bro. What's going on with that? Bro, tell me, tell I, only dro- I only drop bangers. I only do heavy hitters around <laughs> here. I dropped episode 143, and it was probably one of the best episodes I've ever... I, one of the one of the best. Top 10, right? Oh, top shit. 10. Yeah, top 10. Okay. And uh, right. people really enjoyed that. So, again, bro, we only dropping bangers around here, man. And we'll, again, That's this was right. fun. This was great. Pe- for people who want to read more on it, Order your copy. Do you have any of these left, Longo? I have one. Oof. How much is it going to cost now, bro? $3,000? I don't know. I got to double check. Oof. Well, you can hit up Longo. I mean, the initiated know where to hit him up. But if you guys want to check it out, (laughs) The Magic Circle of Rudolph the Second, Alchemy and Astrology and Renaissance Prague. Maybe we should hit this guy up. This guy's still alive. Talk to this guy. I did hit him up. Oh, you did? (laughs) Months ago, yeah. Did he write back? Uh, no, he did not, but maybe I'll try it again. Yeah, hit him up, be like, yo, send him this episode, be like, yo, and then he's gonna be like yeah. looking at us talking about balls and sacks and the uh, uh, philosopher's stone. <laughs> but yeah, Whoa. check this book out. Hold on, this guy's pretty old, bro. He looks pretty old, so I don't know. 
one thing on a, just a pretty basic exoteric viewpoint of what the another because there's obviously many many philosopher stones right some people say that alcohol is a philosopher stone right encapsulating the spirit something that never goes bad it's tangible it's able to extract other things that's that's one of the philosophers but also just creating humans right many of the allegorical stories of creating children the sun and the moon masculine and feminine coming together creating a homunculus is just quite literally creating a child to harbor the fruits and to find the gold of reality by continuing your lineage and that's something that I think Rudolph overlooked potentially was that like he had these kids, but since he didn't really focus any time on uh, on like harboring that relationship, that that depth of love that and, you know, that's what Giordano Bruno was all about, too, is alchemical love and the truth of love being the raw reality of existence and the, and the answer to the cosmos was unconditional love. I just want to throw that out there. Also, Rising from the Ashes. We've been chilling on episodes because we're doing themed months. It's been a little harder to find guests. Uh, but we're diving into the Templars this next couple months. We have an episode with Freddie Silva coming out soon. Uh, famous author and great researcher. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be doing all that stuff. Check it out. I, I, I love podcasting with Juan. Probably my... You know, we're talking about unconditional love, man. Like, met this guy on the internet like, through podcasting is definitely one of the best homies in the podcasting realm for that. Um, Longo, you're the shit, dude. You and your brother are awesome, epic, uh, amazing humans, man. I, it's just a pleasure to be here with you boys today. Homunculus confirmed. Certified mother homunculus. You heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, this was all over the place, but it's fine. Hey, we're, we're talking about history. It's fun to go on these tangents. I really enjoyed this. Hopefully, everybody who showed up enjoyed it. We had a good amount of people in the chat, and the chat was pretty lit. And, yeah, we'll catch you on the next one. Maybe do Giordano Bruno for the next one, and we'll see where that goes. Make sure to follow the show on social media at the 101 Podcast. TJOJP.com has all my links. Make sure to check out the, right, the, you got the Occultist Monday. I put out a new issue uh, last week. And we got to check out the comic book, The Chosen One. It's all on TJOJP.com. Yeah. Uh, Narco, you want to plug anything? Narco. Longo, you want to plug anything? Before we get nah. the fuck out of here? Well. <laughs> nothing to plug. Nothing to plug. Well, everybody have a good night. Stay safe. We love you. And I'm going to play the outro. For us to get out of here, this was on all the platforms. Follow me on Twitch, by the way. I made a Twitch channel and Facebook, Facebook channel and all that stuff. So make sure to follow me on there. Love you guys. Stay safe and be good little homunculi. I'll see you guys on Wednesday. I have an episode dropping on Wednesday. So we'll catch you guys on the other side. All right, here we go. Hold on, let me pull up the, the video. Uh...